Hey everybody, today Rado talks through episode 69 of the podcast, and happy Black History Month, everybody! Welcome to February, and welcome to the podcast. And if you haven't been here before, here's the deal. I'm about to answer a whole bunch of questions that have been submitted to me at questions at rotto.com. So if you got any questions for me, please send them. The email again, questions at rotto.com, because this entire podcast, it's a two-way street. You ask questions, I answer them. And the format is, first, I do a bunch of game-related stuff. Then I maybe do some more game-related stuff if... Jen, my wife, would have anything to say on them. I think I've got one game, one gaming one for her this month. So if you have any questions about games for Jen, again, questions at raw.com. And then after all the gaming stuff is out of the way, uh, we do a bunch of personal stuff. And that's where things go and go all over the place. We'll pop politics. We'll talk, um, you know, controversies. We'll talk dogs and chicken daycare, all that kind of stuff. And that'll be when Jen joins me for the personal. And um, if you just want to skip around, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I actually dutifully transcribe what every question is in order. So if you're just looking for a particular topic, maybe a question you asked, or maybe one you came here listening for, you can go down and hopefully that'll help you find the question a little bit easier. But, uh, folks, I've dilly-dallied long enough. I've got a ton of questions uh, waiting us. So, hang on, and we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, time for some gaming questions, starting with Jin. S-T-I-J-N. I'm going to assume Jin. Anyway, uh, he wants to know, Boop, boop, boop. Have I ever been approached to review inserts? And if so, have I declined? What are my thoughts? My thoughts are, um, inserts are cool, but they do not serve a purpose that I want. Uh, they are designed to uh, make shorter setup time and longer teardown time. I'm looking for the exact opposite. I like the ritualistic setup. Uh, when I first start playing a game, I'm full of energy and excitement and enthusiasm. I don't mind sorting things out and doing all and shuffling decks. When I'm done playing a game, I'm mentally exhausted and I just want to throw it in a box and be done. So inserts are solving a problem that I personally don't have. So they don't work for me. But that said, I have covered some. Uh, if we were to search for Rotto inserts, let's see what we get. We get Insert Here Run Through, which is a video I did for uh, Insert back in 2014. Uh, and I've still got those inserts, actually. Um, although the most the most recent time I played uh, Escape Curse of the Temple, I found that they... Well, there's a bunch more Escape stuff that has come out, and it doesn't all necessarily fit in my inserts anymore. So there's another problem with inserts. I just like a big, cavernous, empty box with a full of a bunch of plastic baggies full of only loosely, at best, sorted materials and um, plenty of room for expansions in the original box. But uh, not only have I covered that, but I also covered the Gloomhaven Gloom box in 2018, and that one I did keep. That one I see the value of because, yeah, there's excitement for setup, but then there's... Ugh, and Gloom box is pretty cool. But more importantly, my um, goof check Paulo, he did a whole series. Uh, if you do a search for Rotto insert or Rotto, Rotto Meeple Reality, then you will get a 
at least a half a dozen, or if not more, videos that Paulo did where he actually gets on camera and you can say, hey, Paulo, what's going on? And he covers all of these inserts. So if you'd like to see more, obviously Paulo is very organized mentally and physically, and so he loves these things. So you can check out some of those. But that's kind of my feeling about inserts. Alrighty. Next up. <clears throat> Do I have any games that I tend to pull out in seasonal circumstances? Uh, a game that could come out when it snows, etc. No, not really. Uh, I mean, and even if I did, we wouldn't because, as is always the case, we're having to play the next game and move forward, and we can't go back. Uh, I, to be fair, I would love a copy of Ugly Christmas Sweaters. I thought that was very cool, and I could imagine maybe making the time in the holiday season to play that, but. That's about it. Uh, at any given time, I've got a hundred or so games that publishers have sent me that I need to cover. So if I haven't covered, if if I've already covered it, it's not going to get played anyway, seasonal timing or not. If I could erase one game from my memory and experience it again for the first time, what would it be? And then he adds, "I hope you you can list a non-pandemic legacy one." Well, you got me there. That is the one I would choose. I would say Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Oh my gosh. I would so love to experience that again for the first time. And it's because of the emotional roller coaster that took us on. And I don't think I've ever had another game that's... Um, so, if you're going to make me discount that... <sighs> Boy, that's hard. Let's actually uh, take a looky-loo. Let's look at my, my game collection. Ranked.rado.com and that will come up here in just a mo. Uh, did I press enter? There we go. And let's see. Yeah. I mean, Gloomhaven... I mean, I've had emotional moments in that, but... Agricola? Marvel Champions? I'd want it to be an older one. Um, because, hey, you know, some of these... You know, if I played them more recently, I don't need to re... I mean, I, I, it's still fresh in my mind, the first experience I had. First time I played Dominion? No. Trajan? No. Escape? Maybe? But probably not. Probably not. Aeon's End, Cloud Age, Tiny Towns, Wingspan. Boy, I don't know. I don't know, man. That's a tough one. <gasps> Zulkin. You know what? Yes. I would say Zulkin the Mayan Calendar. Because if I'm trying to recapture... If I, if I can't recapture a big emotional journey that I went on... Because board games, generally speaking, don't do that. I would like to capture some kind of sense of awe and wonder. And the first time we ever got to use those gears and saw how they worked in game, that and, and also for my wife, it would, that would probably be her choice. Maybe that or Amerigo, because she uh, the first time she ever got to drop those cubes in the tower. But for now, I'm going to say Zulkin. Good question. All right, um, let's see. And or finally, uh, Jin has been writing solo board game reviews for two years, and wonders if I have any tips. Alrighty. Hmm. Okay, well, my first tip would be stop writing board game reviews and start filming them. I'm sorry to say, the industry has spoken. The viewers have spoken. Uh, publishers know that all other things being equal, a really great written review will not generate near as much attention as a really great video review. But that said, if you're just not up for video, what I would suggest you do is study the work of a really smart woman who, um, for a time, had probably by far the most popular and impactful written board game series, uh, Mina... Uh, Mina G Um What was it called? I think it was called... Not Heavy Cardboard. Was it Fresh Cardboard? Uh, Mina... 
uh, mini fridge, uh, or no, Mina, uh, uh, board game, or Mina, I think it was fresh cardboard. Mina's fresh cardboard. Let's take a look at that. Alrighty. Yep, there we go. Mina's Fresh Cardboard. This was a blog series. It was on Board Game Geek. She went for, I think, a couple of years, and then eventually just kind of got burned out. Uh, it was too much work. And so her last post was, Hey, everybody, I'm going to take a break. I haven't been on for a while. Don't worry, I'll keep going. And then she never did. Um, and it's so sad because we lost one of the greats. Although she's still out there. She's still playing games. Um, but she decided not to let this take over her life, and good on her. Man, I love her. I did a run-through with her or uh, uh, a final thought. Which one was it? Oh, it was years ago. But anyway, she is great. But her, there is a reason that her series was so popular. And if you're watching on YouTube, because if you uh, watch my podcast on YouTube, you can actually see me. Uh, and you can see I'm looking at her stuff now. Um, whereas if you're listening uh, on a podcast app, trust me, the thing about uh, Mina's Fresh Cardboard was a plethora of pictures. Really, really good pictures. Let's actually get to some, uh, get to some earlier stuff. Um, she she, what her format was, pictures of the box cover, um, you know, summary of the gameplay. Actually, if I recall correctly, she kind of told the story of actually playing the game as much as the game itself. Um, and then nice little um, you know, pros and cons. Or she had like a bullet list, I think, at the end, right? She had like a smiley face, frowny face. Or she had a list of things she likes, and then she had frowny faces. Um, and then like a final rating. People loved this. They ate it up. It was so good. And the reason is because, hey, if you can't be video, then give us a lot of pictures that do what a video does, really captures the feel of the game. This is what you need to do to compete, to really stand out, Jen. Um, check out Mina's Fresh Cardboard. And as far as I... Maybe other people have copied her style. I mean, but it's, it's going to be tough to get people's attention. There's one other thing I can suggest as well, which would be go to Facebook... Um, board Game Reviewers. Yeah, I, I recommend this to people all the time. Go to the Board Game Reviewers and Media Group on Facebook. This is a group full of thousands of board game media folks and publishers. And all the time, publishers are coming here saying, hey, we've got like 10 copies of this. Is anybody interested? And people will say, well, you should consider me for doing it because here's my work and here's what I focus on. And you can make a, you can basically make a pitch as to why you should get that copy. And of course, you can talk with other media producers and get good hints and tips. It's a really great, very active, very vibrant um, forum. I highly recommend the Board Game Reviewers and Media Group on Facebook. Uh, even if you hate Facebook, it's worth it. Uh, and I hate Facebook, certainly, but it's worth it to come here and check it out. I cannot recommend it highly enough. All righty. And then finally, thanks so much for the CTC episodes. They've been a blast. Hope you and Tom won't be strangers. Uh, it's a small industry. Okay, don't worry. But let's move on to Jonathan, who uh, loves my live talk-throughs. All right. Oh, meaning you love the fact that I'm, I just started last month actually talking directly to the camera. I assume that's what you mean by live. All right, but anyway... Just wanted to send along the back of the box for a copy of the crew. Yes, I remember you did this when it came in because it shows clearly uh, somewhere on here 2020. And this is a response, in case this is your first time you've ever been on my podcast, uh, that I, I steadfastly insist that um, the crew is a 2019 game. But somebody says, look, proof, 2020 game. And then he said, I don't mean to stir the pot, but I'm going to stir the pot. I, I will not respond to your pot stirring. If I had the strength... Uh, here's the deal, Jonathan. Go to Board Game Geek. Go to the crew. Go to the images section. You will find there's a picture of the back of the box. And if you look at that picture, you will see copyright 2019. And 2019 comes 
before 2020. It supersedes it. So I believe my picture trumps your picture, which is ironic since it's a trick-taking game, so it's all about trumping stuff. But anyway, I assume you have a, a question here. Um, I wonder, have I actually finished my city? Yes, I did a run-through for it. Um, right. So Jonathan's wife and he loved it so much, they finished it in three days. I could totally believe that. I, we finished it under a week, I remember. And, um, right, he wishes more legacy games would follow the, the process of uh, the chapters where you just add new modules every chapter. Well, that's kind of what most legacy games do, isn't it? Uh, I mean, they don't always necessarily... I mean, here's the important thing. Here's what my city did that I don't think gets enough attention. They added new modules, but they removed existing modules so that the game didn't become overburdened with too much stuff, and I thought that was brilliant, and I've never seen any other legacy game do that. And that's dumb, because it's just smart. So, uh, but anyway, you are asking, do I know of any others other than maybe uh, the, the three um, Insteon, this is a typo, I don't know what, Insteon scenarios, of, oh, oh, the three, oh, okay. Uh, you're the, you know, the, the introductory scenarios for Jaws of the Lion. Um, well, no, again... I mean, this is how Pandemic Legacy works. You start out with Pandemic, and not every mission, but every two or three missions, they add a new module. Uh, that's kind of the standard. But you're saying you want something new every single module. Um, then you want Aeon's End Legacy. It's a cooperative game, and maybe that's not what you're looking for, but every module, you get new cards added, new gameplay, new bosses, etc., etc. No two games of Aeon's End Legacy play out the same. So maybe that's one to check out. Or, as I always suggest, go to faq.rado.com and check out my number five question. There you will find a link to a forum that will probably give you a much better answer than I could do. But anyway, there, there's some food for thought. Jonathan. Okay. Renee says, Hey, thanks for the great show. Thanks for the question, Renee. Although I haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, questions. My last talk through about reviewer and audience connection. How reviewers play 100 games one time versus the audience who plays one game 100 times. Right, I remember this came up. Um, wouldn't it be nice to make a show where I play one game a month, or one game once a day for a month. So you're saying I play this game 30 times, and then I do my opinion on the game how my experience changed, or even um, if I want to stop, or would I like it more? Um, that would not work for me. Um, but I am positive. I feel like I have seen some channels that do something similar to that, where they give reports on their first game, their fifth game, and their tenth game, or something like that. I know I've seen that format, although I couldn't tell you where. But it is a good idea. But here's the problem. What you're suggesting, where I, for a month, I play the same game 30 days in a month, and then I do one video, that means I cover 12 games a year. And that is not going to work for me. I don't think it's going to work for my audience. I cover upwards of 200 games a year. I don't think anybody besides Tom Basswell covers more games in a year than I do. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but that's, I, that's just off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure that's the case. And I think my audience gets a lot of value from covering 200 games as opposed to 12 games. So I appreciate the deep dive you're looking for here, but it's just not my bag, baby. Plus, honestly, I like new stuff. I like novelty and fresh... I mean, I, I'd be kind of, I mean, I could totally do this, but, and I think it's an interesting idea. And like I said, I know there's somebody doing something similar, my first, my fifth, and my tenth game, or something like that. I know it's in the back of my head. I cannot think of it. Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's not a video series. But anyway, I don't think it would work for me for that reason. I, I want to cover more than 12 games a year. Um, right. Uh, so uh, that, would be my, that would be my response. But thanks for the question, Randy. And um, hey, maybe we should just on board gaming. Maybe somebody will take you up on it. 
Okay. Nathan. Nathan says, he has one vote for reading the emails verbatim. He finds it easier to follow. And what does that mean? Um, well, here's the deal. First of all, folks, I did not read Nathan's email verbatim just now. Uh, he wrote, one vote for reading the emails verbatim. I find it easier to follow, I think. Whereas I said, he finds it easier to follow, he thinks. This is the way I have always, I have always presented stuff. When I'm reading rules to Jen, when I'm reading emails on the podcast, and probably other points in life, I always kind of reshift the, the focus the first person, third person stuff. So it's like I'm telling somebody a story. Rather than just reciting an email, I'm telling the story of the email. Um, I'm bringing myself in as a lead character because I think that just makes it more interesting. But last month in the podcast, I asked, um, would people prefer I do it one way? And for most of last month's podcast, I read verbatim instead of the way I normally do it. The way I just read now, where um, I, I insert myself into the story of the question. And um, here's the deal. There are thousands of people. I think there's upwards of eight to 10,000 um, downloads and views my podcast gets every month. And uh, of all the thousands of people who heard me ask that question last month, five people answered. Nathan was one. Nathan votes no. Read them verbatim. Um, the key thing for using... Or, let's see. And then... Oh, and then he points out that it's important to... To, tr to try to differentiate when I'm answering a question as opposed to which yeah, I completely agree. And honestly, I could do a lot better on that than I do. But five people answered. Three people said, do it the uh, Rado way. Two people, uh, Nathan was one of them, said, please read them verbatim. So at this point, Nathan, you're losing by one vote. And people, let me know what you think, unless you don't care. Maybe there were only five people and Nathan was one of them who actually care about this. But uh, Nathan, that's why I just read your email the way you don't like it. Sorry, because... Five people voted. All right, and you were outvoted by three of them. Sorry. Um, anyway, so Nathan continues, the key thing is to use dramatic reading voice to distinguish between the email and my reply, uh, which, of course, I do, uh, either instinctively or deliberately. Uh, I'm, I'm smart enough to figure that out. Uh, I could maybe do a slightly more pronounced for the emails, but on the whole, uh, good decision. Keep uh, doing it this way, please. All right, so Nathan was happy, and I'm sorry, Nathan, you were outvoted. I do agree, though. Here's the thing. Whichever way I do it, the fact that I always stop halfway through reading and start answering and then I pick back up reading, I think creates a problem in either format. And what I really need to do is pause. I need to stop reading, pause, and then give my answer. But if you're at all familiar with my show, pausing is not my strong suit. But it is something I need to focus on. But anyway, um, so Nathan put that out there. I think there's going to be another email on this pretty soon. Because uh, some people just answered me directly or whatnot. But <clears throat> it's five. It's three to two right now, Nathan. Sorry, bud. But let's move on to Tim, who has no questions, but potentially uh, something of interest for me and the listeners. Let's find out. So Tim points out that rule books have come up on the podcast the last couple of months. And to Tim, the most egregious thing about rule books can be putting the two-player setup modifications 13 pages after the other setup rules. Tim will never understand why they don't just put them um, in the, their rules in with the others. Um, you know, and then he gives a, a, you know, an example. And then he shouts, why? Or he states, why? Um, and, uh, and then he says, next up. So, I will respond to this. I, 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 th I, I largely agree with you, I think. But it is, uh, there are cases where I think it is appropriate. It's really a question of how different is the two-player rules. Like, a perfect example would be Seven Wonders. Before they 
for whatever ridiculous reason, got rid of the two-player rules officially. While Seven Wonders was officially a two-to-seven player game, um, the rules described the how do you play three-to-seven, how you play normal Seven Wonders, and then there's like a whole separate page devoted to the two-player. Because in Seven Wonders, the two-player with the free city was a very radical departure. And under those circumstances, Tim, I suspect you would agree it was right to pull that out separately. Because to try and read through the rules... Look, I'm just going to play this as a four-player game. I don't need to know all about this free city. Why do you keep telling me? It made sense to put that separately. But if the two-player rules are just, hey, remove some of these cards, and um, players start with five bucks more, and players have two colors instead of one, you know, something that is like... A 5% change to the game? I agree. Just put that stuff in line. It's a very good uh, point, and I agree with you, Tim. Although, again, I think there are definitely exceptions. Alrighty. Next up, Tim continues, why? When they put something useless on the back of the book, holy expletives. And that one I agree with you 100%. Wasting the back cover of the book is ridiculous. It's the most important real estate they got. And to just put nothing there or some art drives me nuts. Alrighty. So anyway, then he continues saying that someone, maybe it was Jeremy Howard, maybe somebody in a Q&A, mentioned wanting Legend of Zelda, the dungeon crawl board game. That was Jeremy Howard, and it was in the Weekly Album, although I think I did talk about it at some point in the podcast. So anyway, Tim says he's not 100% certain, but Fire of Eidolon is the closest to that he's seen. It's essentially a 16-bit video game-themed dungeon crawl with a sort of forbidden island dungeon destruction uh, mechanism. It's a neat game in a little box. And you know what? I have that little box, Tim, and I would love to play it someday. See, I didn't put a pause there to answer. Ugh. Anyway, sorry, folks. Um, and I, I've, I've never gotten around to it, but it is on my shelf of shame. Someday, the reason I haven't played it is because I did put it up to voter to vote, and the voters, the backers of the show, said, no, nah, we don't need to see that. So it's just been really kind of... But someday I will get to play it, and you have spurned me to action even more. Um, and if you'd like to see me cover it, by all means, go to... Um, requests, uh, plural, .rado.com, and you will find it there. And if you give it a thumb, it'll be one step closer to getting covered by the show, because right now it's waiting for thumbs. Actually, how many thumbs has it got? Let's take a looky-loo. If I go to thumbs.rado.com, and then I search for Eidolon, Eidolon, very sadly, is sitting on 10 thumbs. Only 10 people have gone to request.rado.com and thumbed it, or gone to thumbs.rado.com, followed the link to the Geeklist page and thumbed it. And really, to get coverage, you need to be having 60, 70, 80 thumbs. So someday it'll get there, but we're just waiting. So sad. Alrighty. But anyway, yeah, it looks really cool. I look forward to trying it someday. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Next up, Matthias, or Matt. All right. I remember this one. This is the other one. Okay. I'm going to read this one verbatim. Uh, for reasons will become clear very closely. Verbatim, Matt uh, writes, Hey, Rado and Jen, Matt says, Since the question of how to read mail from the listeners came up during his last questions in the previous podcast, he felt obliged to respond. To make things even more confusing, he wrote this mail in third person himself, making it a real challenge for me to keep track of who is saying what. He apologizes for this, and he promises to stop doing it when I decide to keep reading mails in third person. Matt strongly believes I should keep transforming yous to me's and we's. Uh, it's one of those small details that makes my podcast different than the others. He also thinks my listeners can very well handle the occasional goofs that come along with it. In fact, they expect it. 
This is the Rado way. All right. Um, so, yes, I read that verbatim, and but that is how I would have read it if I were translating him on the spot. Although I, I probably would have used more Matt, um, because I, I, when I do this, if I don't keep saying the name, pronouns can start getting really squiggly really quick. So anyway, um, there was one vote in favor. Those were the two people who actually wrote to questions at Rado.com and actually said one way or the other. And then a few other people contacted me. So Matt, currently, you're in the winning faction. Speaking of the Rodaway, uh, Matt, he also likes to uh, likes to remind me that in the past, I've always stood for quantity over quality. That's true. Notice how I put the pause in there. Uh, and while I now have some of the best video, audio, lighting quality in the board game business. Well, thank you, Matt. That's very kind to say. I don't know if I agree, but I'm working really hard on it. Anyway, he continues. Um... Uh, because he wouldn't want this awful trend to make its way into the podcast as well. Okay, by which he's being clever and saying he doesn't want me to become all polished and just read it like a newscaster. All righty. All right, but he has actually now stuck a question. Um, right, so he's wondering, do I have any future plans for Corner to Corner with Tom Vassell? Matt really enjoyed the relaxed pace discussion between, um, between me and Tom. Uh, wow, this is really doing my head in because I keep wanting to adjust it. I mean, mission accomplished, Matt. You're really messing with me. Uh, became one of his favorite game shows to, uh, board game shows to watch. If not with Tom, would I consider doing a similar live show uh, with other guests? And to answer your last question first, no. Here's the deal. Um, that's a lot of work that Tom was having to do. He was having to juggle a lot of plates, spin a lot of plates, juggle a lot of balls um, or swords or whatever to keep me and the audience and you know the the format of the show and reading the questions, having back and forth with me, all that stuff. I mean, all I had to do is just show up and just pipe up. He did all the work. I appreciate how much work it is. I don't want to do any of it, especially because he's on a Macintosh, which means he has eCam software, which is not available on Windows, and that made it so much easier for him. And there are comparable things to eCam on Windows, but nothing anywhere near as good. So you know, I am not going to do that because that would be a lot of work. Um, that said, I have been doing more top 10 cro crossovers with people. Um, maybe I'll continue doing that. Although, man, that's a lot of work too. Anyway, sorry. Uh, and as for, uh, well, here's the deal. The morning of our final episode, 10 minutes before, we always got on 10 minutes before and just made sure everything was going fine. And 10 minutes before we started, he said, hey, how do you feel about this being the last episode ever? I'm like, okay. Because it was all him. Um, I was happy to go along for the ride, but... Uh, you know, it's up to him if he wants to start again. Although, <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was it was a pretty heavy thing to keep working on, to, you know, always in the schedule. And I like to be fast and loose and not really tied down to anything in particular. So, I don't know. Time will tell. Who knows? Um, but anyway, sorry I didn't give you quite what you wanted there, Matt. But hey, you are winning the vote. Okay. Who's up next? Helmet. Helmet is back. Oh, yes. He's got a fancy little graph of how my board game... Um, and I actually, I already talked to Helmet about this, because when it came in... Basically, as I recall... All right, so Helmet says, In the last podcast, I had questions about the gaming year 2020. Or, you know, questions came to me from somebody else about was game 2020 a good year for games? And somebody pointed out, no, it wasn't, based on my statistical analysis. And I remember, and I replied, this is not me, um, uh, I'm just say saying the story. I replied to that person saying, look, I need more data. And, um, and, you, and you missed certain key elements of how to analyze. So anyway, Helmut uh, heard that question. And, um, right, so that prompted him, this question here, all right, all right. I mentioned that I would like to have the games ranked down uh, by any year, 
And so I started my Rado Analysis app, Helmet Made an App, to provide that. And then there's a bitmap with the output, and he points out, uh, here's how you can read it, here's what the different columns read, and stuff like that. And at the end of it, he says, so strictly speaking, 2020 looks very similar to 2018 in terms of overall game quality, and might be superseded once I uh, cover the games that are yet to come. So here's the cool thing. I actually contacted Helmet when this came in and said, hey, can I have that app? And he gave me it, and I played with it, and it was fun, and I started a thread at guild.rotto.com. And if you are at all a stat head, I strongly recommend go to guild.com and find the stats thread. It'll still be one of the newest ones, because you can get Helmet's uh, stat app. And other people pointed out other very cool stats apps, and it was all very neat, and it was a lot of fun. And lots of fun at guild.rotto.com. But anyway, Helmet now has a question. He found, during this process... Uh, 57 games at the end of the list which currently have no ranking. He can understand about the 2020 games having no ranking, but what about Adlung Land, which was from 2010? And then he has a link to the list, which is basically... This is... Um, I could follow that link, but you'd get the same thing if you go to unfilmed.rado.com. Because to answer your question, all those games are games that I have not filmed. Either because they're games I bought myself, like Adlung Land, and therefore it gets lower priority. Someday I'll play it, but right now I've got too many games publishers are sending, and I prioritize those over games I bought myself. But a lot of them uh, on this list, or if you just go to unfilmed.rado.com, you can see the same list if you're at home. Um, a lot of these are just games I've yet to play yet and yet to cover. And if I haven't played it, I'm not going to rank it. That's what all of these are. Or, in some cases, I've played it, but maybe not enough. Or, I've played Guilds of London. I've filmed Guilds of London. I got rid of Guilds of London. The reason this is on here is not Guilds of London. This should actually be changed. This shouldn't be Guilds of London. This should be Guilds of London expansion. That's the thing that's unplayed here. So, apparently, there's some mistakes on this list as well. I'm very excited about Red Cathedral. I'm going to be covering it this month. I just hadn't done it yet. So, that's why all of these, whether they're old or new... and you said you understand the new one, but there's another old one. Oh, Jam and Shh. These got sent to me as review copies, and um, uh, it was like a whole set of five, and our dog Tula got into them and destroyed all but two, and then I lost those two, and I only recently found them, and so I'm just a bad person. I should have covered these years ago. And uh, Darkness Come Rattling, that's an old game. That's one I bought myself. I don't know if it'll ever get covered, unless, again, it's on thumbs.rado.com. If people were to thumb it, it would get covered. So a lot of these older ones are just things I bought. Or I'm, right now, I'm just looking at all new ones. Or they um, are stuff that I put to the voters. Pretty much every single one of these has gotten a vote, and the voters have said, no, we don't care. Where's another old one? Or we don't care about Eaten by Zombies. I would love to film Eaten by Zombies. I think it's a great little deck builder. But they said, we don't care about it. It got voted low, so it's I've had it since 2000. Although, to be fair, this is another one that I bought myself. Where's an old one? Rattle Battle Grab the Loot. I have covered this. I have covered this. Why is this on the list? This is wrong. Am I looking at PubSet? Right. Well, there's a few mistakes here as well. Maybe I should have actually looked at your list. Your probably list was a little bit better, because you're looking at the unranked things. Long story short, why haven't I covered them? It's a combination of either I bought them, and or um, my voters said, no, we don't want to see this when I asked them. And so they sit, waiting in purgatory, until people go to requests.rotto.com, where they all live... And if enough people give them thumbs, if, I mean, Adlungland, where is it? Right. Where is it? Adlungland has 48 thumbs. Someday it'll get up to the 60 or 70 thumbs and it'll get covered then. 
Uh, but until then, it won't. So that is the story. All right, and thanks again for the app helmet. It was a lot of fun. Okay. Hey, Kelly. Kelly says that she loves... I assume she. Could be he. I've worked with a guy. All right. All right. Kelly says that they know that I love digital integration in games, uh, but noticed that I have some very different opinions about Lord of the Rings, Journey in Middle-Earth, versus the Helper app for Gloomhaven. Uh, and uh, Kelly goes on that, in my final thoughts for Lord of the Rings, Journey in Middle-Earth, I said, why not have an app do all the boring, crappy bookkeeping so we can just keep focused on the fun adventuring? How can anybody complain about that? Apparently, quote, end quote. There's a direct quote. Yet, in a recent Top 10 Heavy Game Revisit, I said about the board game, the Gloomhaven, the Gloomhaven Helper app, wow, direct quotes here, I love it. No matter how well they're implemented, I don't care for them because it feels like it becomes a barrier between me and the game. So Kelly is curious. What's with the distinction between these two apps? Kelly, you caught me. I'm a human being. I can have inconsistencies. It's true. But let me try to explain myself. When I was talking about this in Lord of the Rings, one of the things you have to bear in mind is, and I probably talked about this in the, the, the heavy, the top 10 heavy that you're quoting from as well. Every time I ever talk about digital or digital app integration into board games, I feel like the number one thing I really have to drive home is, this is a good thing. Um, grognards who refuse to accept, who, um, who want to insist a ban on digital integration into board games and want nothing to be within 100 feet of their gaming table, I'm just always mostly sending a message to them that you're really missing out on a lot of cool stuff. Let me expouse on the many different ways it can really improve the quality of the game. And so that's one of the things that the Lord of the Rings Middle Earth app does. Now, and that's me trying to pitch it as a cool thing that enhances the overall quality of the game. That's not me saying that I necessarily want to use it personally in Gloomhaven, because the reality is, I love Gloomhaven so much, I personally... And, and this is me kind of siding with the grognards. I do love the physical, tactile nature of manipulating the cards and reshuffling the decks. I love the ritualistic nature of that. Um, and... Uh, I, I, I don't see how anybody could complain about it. Your, your, your exact quote for me from the Middle Earth thing was, how can anyone complain about that? I am not complaining about it. I think it's great that it exists because I know a lot of people love it and it makes the game experience overall more fun. It doesn't necessarily for me because of this weird thing that I like the ritualistic nature. That said... If Journeys of Middle-Earth had a non-app way to play, I wouldn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Because, crankily speaking, Journeys of Middle-Earth is nowhere near as good as Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven is my number three game of all time. So I can certainly imagine games that I don't love quite so much being ones that I would be very, very happy to have some kind of digital app with. It's just, uh, Gloomhaven is special. I love it. Um, I have actually tried the apps. My biggest problem was they don't really work well on a phone because they're trying to cover too much stuff. You really need a full screen and then it takes up more table space and Gloomhaven already takes up too much table space, etc., etc. So there's extenuating stuff, but that's kind of basically the difference there, if that makes sense. Good question, though. Good catch. Kelly continues. Number two. Why would I say... Or what would I say is the average amount of time I spend covering a game from first being contacted by the publisher to the video going up? Well, first of all, there's a lot of stuff that happens after the video goes up. I still, years later, uh, I've just answered a question about, I think it was Lancaster the other day. I filmed that game almost 10 years ago. So uh, once the game is up, I continue to cover them for years later. But that you asked for when the game goes up. What is the process? A publisher contacts me. I say, send me the rules. 
They send me the rules. I read the rules. And by the way, this is a very, very difficult thing to do because I read it to evaluate, not to learn the game, but to evaluate if I think we would enjoy it. And I'm having to do it without the game in front of me, and that's very difficult. So sometimes that's a quick and easy thing. Sometimes the rules are very, very, very hard to grok. And I read them like two or three times. Whereas sometimes I can just breeze over and say, oh yeah, I get it. Oh, that's cool. That sounds good. Um, so there's big variation there. Uh, you know that, that process could be 10 minutes, or that process could be two hours. Easily, I've had rules that I've spent upwards of two hours trying to figure out when I'm just vetting the game. So there's no one answer. But anyway, if, if it looks good, I say, hey, yeah, send it. Then they send it. Then Jen and I play it. On average, usually a couple of times, sometimes more, especially if it's like a campaign game or a legacy game. Sometimes only once, if it was a pretty straightforward game, or if it turns out we didn't like it. But you know, play it a few times, and again, the, the length of the game. That could be anywhere from a 15-minute filler to a two-plus-hour Vita Lasarda game. Then I film it, and again, based on the game, uh, and based on the number of times I have to film it, that could be really super stretchy as well. Because after I film the game, my Patreon backers get to see it early, so they can see it ad-free, because uh, it hasn't been made public yet. And it's waiting for Paolo to goof check, and Paolo goof checks it, and I have to spend time there too. Because the most one of the most amazing things about Paolo to me is, often he has not played these games. Uh, often he doesn't even have access to the rules uh, because if it's a prototype, it might be really crappy rules that I've been using, or you know. And so basically, he'll just watch my run through and say, "Hey, what you just did there doesn't really make sense to me. I don't think that's right. Is that really the way that's supposed to work?" And then I have to do back and forth with him. I mean, Paulo is an amazing brain for board games. It is insane to me that the board game industry has not scooped him up, hired him as a full-time developer because he knows he. His brain is a board game. The fact that he can spot... He will catch goofs that I make that the publishers who are reviewing don't see, even though he's never played the game because he just knows what's right and knows what's ideal. I mean, he should be a game designer, but he doesn't want to be. Um, if there are any board game publishers, if you want one of the best developers you will ever have, hire Paulo Renato full-time. Contact me. I will get you in touch with him. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so anyway, I end up maybe taking up a lot of time back and forth with Paulo. And if Paulo um, notices something, oh, that was... Paulo gives me recommendations on if I need to go back and refilm a little insert and then re-render the video, which will take a, another hour or two, again, depending on the video. Or if, in some cases, I have to go back and refilm the whole thing, which probably happens at least, at least once a month. But then eventually it gets uploaded. Um, and then you didn't care about what happens after that, but uh, it gets... it goes live. So... With all of that, there's no easy answer. It could be anywhere, probably at the very, very minimum, for the simplest game where everything just goes right, probably at the very least, two or three hours. But for a really big thing, maybe upwards of 20 hours. Um, and that's putting aside like a legacy game where I've got to play through, and that's just a game I'm going to play a couple of times. So anywhere from two to 20 hours, which is a pretty big spread, but there's a lot of variety in games. Alrighty. Kelly's third question um, is as follows. Originally, I was going to cover ISS Vanguard myself, but in the end, I sent it to Shay after realizing that Jen and I were not going to enjoy it. Is this something that's happened before that I had contributors? And if it happened before, would I have covered it anyway or backed out of covering it? And that varies. Um, I, definitely both things have happened. Most famously, if you ever watched my final thoughts for Myth, that here's what I'll do. Oh, crap. We don't like this game. I made a mistake. It, I vetted it. I thought it would work. It didn't work. Jen doesn't even want to finish playing it. She hates it so much. You know, that or whatever. Um, I contact the publisher. I say, hey, I made a mistake. We didn't like it. I don't think you want me to cover this game, because here's what I'll say in my final thoughts. 
Um, I, I, you know, do you want me to do that? Or, hey, you know what? Just give me an address and no charge. I'll ship it to another reviewer, somebody who would actually like this game, um, you know, who would do you more good than harm, because it'll probably harm you if I film this. And most of the time, publishers say, oh, okay, that's cool. Could you send it over this away? And I say, fine. Uh, let me know when you got your next game. Sorry, it didn't work out. Uh, you know, so we all make mistakes sometimes. Occasionally, they say, no, go ahead and film it anyway. And like I said, the most famous example of that was Myth. And I have nothing but respect for the publishers of Myth. They knew exactly what I was going to say. And they said, no, we don't mind. Um, you know, speak your mind, come right out, and you know, let us have it. And I let them have it. And I feel like I significantly contributed to the overall failure of that game as a result. And it drives me nuts. I'm not happy about it. I didn't want to do it. They wanted me to do it, so I did it. Um, this was before I had contributors. Because ISS Vanguard, here's the deal. If I didn't have Shea to send it to, I would have told them, oh, guys, guys, I'm sorry. I should have said no to this. I made a mistake. Surely you want me to send this someplace else. Because here's the deal. In ISS Vanguard, Jen didn't literally did not want to keep playing. After... Uh, half an hour at the table, she's like, oh my god, please, no. Not because there's anything wrong with the game, but because we just didn't like its use of dice. It was just too much. And um, and the thing is, if they'd said, no, keep on going, I probably would have had to finish that game solo. And I would have said, hey, um, you know, my, uh, and I would have said, you know, I'm, at the end of the day, this game has too much dice rolling. Here's all the things that I can appreciate are really cool, but all of it's completely subsumed by the fact that there are too much dice in this game, and my wife and I did not enjoy it. But if you don't mind dice, maybe you should give it a go. Um, and this, I would give them the choice if that's what they want me to say. Because still, in my Myth video, I tried to up, you know, big up the positive stuff I saw, in spite of the fact that overall it was it was a terrible experience for us. And so I am so happy that I have Shay now, that I have a third option I can give them. Which, in the case of ISS Vanguard, was the right option. I'm really happy. I, I It should have gone to him in the first place. I should have known better. I was just assuming that, hey, we didn't mind the dice rolling in this war of mine. Maybe this will be cool. But for us, it wasn't. So that's basically how that works. Okay. Uh, Martin. Hello, Martin. Martin loves all that I do. And has a gaming question um, for uh, has a gaming question for me, and then a personal question for Jen. So let's do the gaming stuff. Has to do with the gaming ethics of the controversial tabletop simulator. And folks, at this point, it would not be a Rado Talks Show episode without a tabletop simulator question. So let's continue. Uh, Martin prefaces that he agrees with my stance. Oh, that's fresh. Uh, thank you, Martin. My stance on using tabletop simulator to bypass publishers and to play games for free. This is wrong. And um, But Martin's in a situation that he'd like input on. Uh, forgive the rambling thoughts. They're somewhat confusing. Uh, due to COVID, Imperial Assault, a setup is clunky. All right. Sometimes middle, or you know, so he wants to play Imperial Assault with his friends. He can't because of COVID. He does own the game, and um, the uh, TTS module works pretty well. So, so, all right. And so, the question is, what is my stance on people using TTS for games that they already own a physical copy of? My stance is that's totally fine. But my stance, I don't think I've been clear about this. My stance has never been a problem with people who use TTS to play games. And really, I don't really have much of a problem with people who mod TTS to basically pirate games. I have a problem with the developers of TTS who have created and continue to support a piracy platform for games. That's the problem. Um, modders, you know, I, I appreciate they're just passionate. They want to spread the gospel of the game. They want to have more people playing. That's great. I applaud them. I know it's a lot of hard work. But the problem is the developer. Here's what developers. Here's what TTS should have done. It's it's tricky 
But I totally believe this could be done based on my 20 years of digital video game development, where I worked with programmers for decades. I know this could be done. The way TTS should have been architected was that, hey, it's a tool set. Anybody can make anything they want on it. And that includes scanning cards and making perfect duplicate digital duplicates of games. Fine. Um, and people can even upload them to the Steam Workshop, which is, I understand, how they get propagated. But here's the deal. If I buy Tabletop Simulator for, what is it, 10, 15 bucks, and then I find, um, what was it, uh, the Star Wars game, Imperial Assault, and in the Workshop, and I click it, what I should see as a player is, you know, it loads up Tabletop Simulator, and one of two things happens. Either it plays, or I see a message that says, we're sorry, this is an unauthorized modification. Please contact the mod maker to um, get authorization from the publisher so that this can be um, shared via our platform. Done. And now the way they do that is every mod has a flag. If the flag is empty, then that means TTS recognizes, oh, they haven't gotten authorization. Now here's the deal. TTS didn't do this because it would be a lot of work for them, because the onus is on them to confirm all these authorizations, to check emails and all that. And they didn't want to do that work. And bad on them. They figured it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. And so they, what they're doing is wrong. Um, I, 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 and here's the deal. And this, this is where I get a... It's, it's, there's a lot of gray area here. But personally, I don't have a problem with me owning Tabletop Simulator, and Martin owning Tabletop Simulator, and Martin not getting permission to make an uh, Imperial Assault mod, and then emailing it to me. Uh, it provided Martin owns the game, which as he says, he does. If Martin bought the game... Because to me, on some level, you know, back in the 90s, I had a, uh, I, I, I had HDTV before anybody else had it. So I saw high-def uh, uh, Sopranos, and none of my co-workers did back when we were in Oregon. And they all wanted to see my high-def stuff. And uh, so I was able to record high-def stuff. I was paying for my HBO. I would make the... You know, I'd, I'd burn them on... No, I had magnetic... I had some kind of special HDTV. I don't forget what it was. Or maybe we had watch parties. But anyway, I would let other people watch the high-def Sopranos that only I was able to get because nobody else had HDTV at that point in Bend, Oregon. Um, I paid for my HBO. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Um... Maybe you could argue I was, uh, but you know, um, I used to record copies of uh, of Star Trek and watch it with uh, other people in their dorm rooms when I was in high school or in college. Star Trek: The Next Generation. These things did not strike me as unreasonable because I was still watching the commercials. I was still consuming the content. I was still I had my uh, scan of the game. So if somebody owns the game, makes a mod, shares it with their friends. I'm totally fine with that. The problem is, all they have to do right now is upload it to Workshop, and then suddenly thousands of people can play it. And thousands of people do play it. And that's the equivalent of me recording a copy of Friends, and instead of just sharing it with my friends in the dorm, or not that I had friends in the dorm, but you, you get the idea, that's me taking my copy I've made and going down to the street corner and selling it to anybody who will walk by. Um, and I think that crosses a line. And TTS has created a system where that's by default what happens. And it's wrong. Um, I, was, I was seeing uh, Suzanne Sheldon and some other folks on Twitter were talking about how uh, Tabletop Simulator is actually dangerous for publishers because they have very limited and restricted rights if they're making a Star Wars game, that they have to adhere to all these rights. Um, somebody making a, an Imperial Assault app that anybody can play without spending money could make the publisher lose 
lose their license to make that game because they have broken, um, because they can be held accountable for it. And that's crap. And that's what TTS is doing. It's totally unacceptable. TTS is totally in the wrong. And therein ends my rant, which I have to do every month, about TTS. And I suggest everybody go over to Tabletopia because Tabletopia does it right and they deserve your support. Um, and TTS, strictly speaking, does not because they what they have done is immoral and wrong. Alrighty. Anyway, sorry. So um, to answer your question, no, I, I think you're I think you're cool. It's not your fault. It's TTS's fault for creating this circumstance, Martin. Anyway, continuing back to Martin, he says that he agrees there's a gray area for TTS on the minority people that already own the game and wouldn't use it for new games. If Final Fantasy had an official online interface to play, then I would definitely use this, but it does not exist. I'm at a point where I've given uh, FFG several hundred dollars, and again, oh, you're, you're justifying yourself. I think you're fine. I think the mod makers are fine. I think TTS is in the wrong here. Anyway, I agree with your view that using Tabletop Simulator to bypass the production line is abhorrent, and I will, uh, and definitely when COVID's over, he's going to go back to normal. So anyway, that's cool. And then uh, he has questions, and there's a picture of a dog and all of that, and that'll come up later in the personals. Right, what are we at now? We are at f almost 50 minutes. Let's continue. Gerard says... Alrighty. I tried searching... Ger Gerard tried searching... Ah, I messed up there. I was starting to read uh, um, uh, verbatim. Gerard recently searched for my top 10 legacy campaign games, but was unsuccessful. Is there somewhere else you can let me venture? So he's asking, where is it? I've never done it, because... There aren't enough legacy games. Now, you're saying legacy slash campaign. That's interesting. But... Yeah, I could do... Like, I don't think I would do that. There is a difference between a legacy game and just a campaign game. And it really bugs me that people conflate the two and say, Oh, is it a legacy game? Yeah, it's a legacy game, except that um, you, don't make, uh, you don't have any permanent changes. Okay, then it's not a legacy game. It's a campaign game. It's a different thing. And it drives me nuts. So I certainly wouldn't do a list that conflates the two, because that drives... I, I don't... I, 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 I think that's an unfortunate overlap that causes people to constantly have to explain when we have perfectly good um, uh, terms. I haven't done Legacy because I don't even think I've played 10 Legacy games yet because they're not taking over the industry like everybody was worried about. And, um, right. So, yeah, that's why. I just haven't gotten it yet. Anyway, uh, Gerard has finished My City. Charterstone is still his favorite. It's one of ours. We love it. I uh, played a few, but I was wondering... If a top five would be. You know what? Let's do this. Let's do this thing, Gerard. Let's go back to Board Game Geek and let's find um, My City. That's a legacy game. That's a proper legacy game. And I believe when I look at this, I will be able to say, show me the family for legacy games. Mechanism Legacy. There we go. So here's a list. Um, right. No, I don't, need, I don't need the top games. I need all the games... See, all 76. I've, well, a lot of these are going to be expansions, and I bet a lot of these are not. But anyway, what do we sort by? Aeon's End Legacy is definitely in the top five. Android Netrunner Terminal Directive? Is that, I don't even know anything about that. Betrayal Legacy? Wouldn't play it. It doesn't support two. Uh, big Picture? Never heard of it. Uh, blank? Um, I think that's a party game. Uh, Centauri Alpha Abandon? That's a 4X game. Not really our thing. Charterstone? That would be in the top five. Probably. Uh, Chronicles never came out. Clank Legacy, I don't think that would be in the top five, but that would be in the top ten, because I think I've only played ten. We'll find out as we keep going. Uh, right, these don't exist. I never heard of these. Dragonfire, I am not going to consider Dragonfire or Shadowrun Crossfire Legacy games. Strictly speaking, by the letter of the law, they are, but they are not enough. 
Um, they, it, is, it is not a requirement to use stickers to get the full experience of those games. So I'm not going to consider them Legacy, even though I don't begrudge anybody. First Martians, that is opening envelopes is not Legacy. Sorry. Uh, I realize you can't then reseal the envelope, but it's still not a Legacy game. Flipkart, I've never heard of. Frosthaven, I'm, I'm just going to... Frosthaven, Jaws of the Line, Gloomhaven, that's all one entry. It's Gloomhaven, it's my number two, because Pandemic Legacy is my number one. Do-do-do, lots of expansion-y business. Boop. Moving on to the next page. More Gloomhaven expansion-y business. Dee-dee-dee-dee-doo. Hidden Territories. Every hero needs a quest. Came out in 2020, apparently. Never heard of it. A Jackal Archipelago. I And a bunch of stuff for it. Never heard of it. King's Dilemma. I so want to play this game. But it's three-player minimum. So I'll never play it, sadly. Living Starship. Never heard of. Machi Coral Legacy. I would definitely give this a go. But they never sent me a review copy, so I just moved on. My City is definitely in the top five. Probably in the top five. Probably definitely in the top five. Pandemic. Again, I'm doing all this one. Uh, Pericle is coming out this year. Don't know what that is. Personal Space. Didn't see it last year. Moving on to the next page. I think the last page. Zombie Teen Evolution. That's it. At least... Now, I feel like that's missing stuff. Oh my gosh! That's missing... Um, the Queens... The, the, the Maltz... Not the Maltz game. The... Uh, the brand game, the Queen's Destiny. What was it called? Queen. Uh, the ca the castle, of the Queen. Oh my gosh, that's driving me nuts. All right, I can't think of the name of it. So what's another game they did? They did Village, and then I will find. No, not Village. Oh my gosh, what else did they do? Uh, um, that's all I can think of is Village. Just give me Village. Although they've done many, many things, many great things, but my brain, I'm freaking out now that I can't think of the name of their wonderful. All right, all right, where is the name? There we go. Inca Brand. And uh, she is probably the most unsung designer in the industry. And that is a crying shame because she does amazing stuff. Let's look at her top ranked stuff so I can find there. Apparently, it's not ranked higher than all this other stuff. Oh my gosh. I did not expect this to be quite so hard to find. The, the Rise of Queensdale. Rise of Queensdale is in the list. <sighs> That's pretty much it. So you can see I'm nowhere near 10. And it's Pandemic, it's Gloomhaven, it's My City or Charterstone, probably My City over Charterstone, and then probably Queensdale. I think that's probably my top five. Maybe I missed a few here or there, but that gives you some idea. We got a long ways to go before uh, Legacy takes over the industry. All righty. Uh, and then we have uh, Gerald, although it's a different Gerald. No. I was just talking to Gerard. Oh, I'm so sorry. Every month I mess up Gerald and Gerard, two of the most frequent questioners. All right, so that was Gerard. Here's Gerald. Sorry if I got that wrong before. Gerald loves Star Trek, even more than Star Wars 4, 5, and 6. Um, and he, he recalls me saying that I wished the existing Star Trek game had a friendly two-player variant or cooperative mode because it's the most thematic Star Trek game. Uh, well, and he's asking, was I talking about Fleet Captain or Ascendancy? I've not played Ascendancy, um, although I'd really like to. It looks really good. I was talking about Fleet Captain, which was very, very cool if we could have both played Federation or Klingon or Romulan or whoever, instead of you know basically the whole game being designed for us to fight each other in a, in a Star Trek 4X game, basically. Uh, but yeah, Fleet Captain I thought was very impressive. Uh, but we, didn't, we never played more than one game of it because we hated it. All right. So the question, though, from Gerald is, would my perfect Star Trek game be A, B, or C? A, 80% space battles against AI, 20% non-combat with story. <clears throat> 
B. 80% non-combat gameplay with story and 20% space battles. C. 100% non-combat with story, no space battles at all. Um, uh, I would be, uh, for me, it would be, uh, it would be more about the planet side stuff, definitely, or the shipboard stuff. So I guess I, although, I mean, when you say non-combat, and uh, that's a bit of a misnomer, um, I would want the game to be probably 15 or 20% space combat. Right. And then probably uh, the same amount of, of terrestrial combat. Maybe a little bit more planet-side combat. Um, and then the remainder, non-combat, investigation stuff, um, you know, discovery, exploration, that kind of thing. Probably something like that. Uh, you know, interspersed. That would be, which you didn't give me that choice, so I made D. Alrighty, next up. If I chose A, I did not. Um, right, but A was mostly space battles. Okay. Um, right. So I, I chose B, which was mostly not space battles. So B2. Uh, there's a flowchart to this email. Um, who would I want to design that? Ryan Lockett or Alexander Pfister? Oh my gosh. And if it had been like, oh, this is a fun email. If it had been the space heavy, would I rather it be Matt Leacock or Isaac Childress? If I had been Planetside, Lockett or Fister. Wow. Can't they team up? That would be I would love to see a team up with Lockett and Fister. Um As much as I love Alexander Fister, I think Ryan Lockett is better suited to the ideal Star Trek game for me. Although I would love to see an Alexander Fister Star Trek game that's all about being the you know, president of the Federation. Um, you know, or you know, being super high level, all about you know managing um, Starfleet and the Federation, or you know, or like you know, the, you know, the, the the supreme high, whatever it is, of Starfleet. I would, I want to see that game from Alexander Pfister, and I never knew it until just this second. Oh my gosh, that is the ultimate Star Trek game. So that's E. Section E is, I want a high level Euro that's uh, about me controlling Star or me and Jen, competitively or combatively. I would get almost. Uh, but anyway, if we're talking about that adventure game, I think Ryan Lockett is the best suited. All righty. All right. Uh, no offense to Fister, because I love him. All right, but I love them both. All righty. Um, and for the space one, Leacock versus Childress. Probably Childress. Um, oh, no, but we're turning it into a cooperative game. No, probably still Childress. But again, can't they work together? That'd be a great team-up with Matt Leacock and Isaac Childress working together on a cooperative Star Trek space battle-focused game. That sounds awesome. I want that. I want all of these games we just talked about. Very much so. Enough with the gosh darn Star Wars. Give us more of the Trek. Anyway, though, moving on to Kirk. Oh my gosh. Um, that was crazy. With all the talk of the new game in the Garpil uh, Circadians universe, Kirk's uh, been remembering how much I love Circadians First Life. I, uh, you're right, Kirk. I did like it quite a bit. It's definitely my favorite of the four Garpil games. Uh, any thoughts as to why the game has been so overlooked in comparison to the North Sea and West Kingdom trilogies? One word. Two words. The Miko. Um, I like the art of Circadians, which I get the impression is actually being done by a... by by Shem Phillips' brother or something like that. I'm not really sure. I think they have the same last name, and I think he's actually a very popular graphic designer, and so it's all in the family kind. I, I could be wrong about that. I've never read an interview. I just somehow picked that up. I like the look, but a lot of people just could not stand the look of the art in Circadians. Uh, and, uh, and that's too bad. 
But there's no getting around it. I mean, there is a reason the Miko is in such high demand. The Miko's art will sell the game just based on the strength of his art. And it 100% and comes down to that. If the Miko had done the art for Circadian's First Light, it would, I believe, had a much better shot at doing as well and being uh, on as many buddies as, as, as many... People would be talking about it as much as the West Kingdom games. I, I believe. Alrighty. There's very few artists that are that good. Vincent Dutre um, and, uh, and the Miko are the two premier artists. I mean, there's lots of other artists whose art will sell the game too, but not as consistently as those two. All right. But anyway, continuing on to Kirk, he wonders, do I have any information about Circadian's Chaos Order beyond what's on BoardGameGeek? No, I don't. And I have to admit, I haven't looked because it's a, it's a battle game. It's a 4X, or maybe it's not 4X, but it's all about area control and deploying your troops. And it's, I, I was really bummed to see what it is because I'm not going to play it at all. I, I don't even have it on my wish list at all. Do you know if you'll be previewing the game for Kickstarter? I think I just, spoiler alert, I might not. If they contact us, though, I think Shay could, and I think he would do an amazing job. So I hope they contact us about it, because that would be great. Garpill, if you're listening, contact us. Just, I mean, a lot of publishers have not realized, I mean, they, they've gotten used to me saying no to them so many times for games that have heavy player conflict or don't support two players. They don't realize, you can come to me now. You can get really good Rotto-style co coverage of your games on my channel. And hey, I bet you anything, Shay would be definitely down to cover Circadian's Chaos Order. And fingers crossed they contact. Anyway, though. Uh, continuing, if my final thoughts for Circadian's first slot, or in my final thoughts for Circadian's, I compared it quite flavor, uh, quite favorably to Mirmi's, but Kirk noticed that Mirmi's is still rated higher. Um, can I explain what it is about Mirmi's that makes it a better game? Um, well, the thing I love about both the games, the, the reason I draw comparisons is because they both do the brilliant thing of, hey, there's a bunch of public objectives, but for me to uh, commit to those objectives and score all those points, I have to sacrifice my workers. And now I'm weaker for the rest of the game. And But every anybody can grab them anytime you want. So there's like this push your luck, daring, you know, um, who's going to be the first to give up a worker to complete that if we've both done it? I think that's so great, and I loved it in Miramis, I love it here. In, in Circadian First Light, and everybody should check out Circadian's First Light, quite frankly, and Miramis for that matter. But um, I, Miramis, I, I, on the whole, I think I just like, I mean, uh, you know, I, I thought it did a, it had more interesting stuff going on with its replication. Oh, okay. The big thing that puts Miramis over them, I mean, to be fair, I prefer the dice uh, drafting stuff in Circadian's over the more traditional worker placement stuff in Miramis. But the other thing I love about Miramis is just how insanely, incredibly, over-the-top brutal it is. It is a very, very hard game to survive. And Circadians is more of just kind of a light-hearted race to complete stuff. So that's, I think, the thing that puts Miramis over the top relative to Circadians. Although, again, it's also great. All righty. All right. Oh, here's another one. Uh, perhaps I much prefer when you translate. That was vote number two for me converting emails on the fly. Maybe, they, maybe Kirk's just gotten used to it, but it was quite confusing in the last talks through when I read them straight. Yeah. All right. So uh, that was it for Kirk. And, okay, this is a last, the last one. Yay. All right. And this one is from, to be very careful because I don't want to say his whole name. Let me go on ahead and make this a bit bigger. Uh, oh, yeah. Stephen. Stephen. 
Right. Now that I'm actually showing emails, I'm trying to be very careful not to tell people's entire names, just their first name. And as I recall, Stephen, in his SIG down at the bottom, had his full name and his his email address and his work. And I'm like, ah, don't, I don't want to put your phone number out on public. So I had to be careful um, for this one. Anyway, though, so Stephen says, Hey, Rado. Uh, Stephen's been a big fan for the last few years, longtime listener, mostly play with the wife only, while trying to convince the family to play, family and friends. Question. Trying to find a good game for uh, his wife to enjoy. She likes Crunchy Euros. Her favorite games are Zulkins and Teotihuacan. Loves other games by Danielle Tessini and Simone Luciani. Which is better? So here's the question. Which uh, He wants me to rate these games. Marco Polo, Marco Polo 2, Lorenzo the Magnifico, Grand Ostia Hotel, and any other suggestions. Any other suggestions are all of them. They're all great. And if you want to know how I rank all of them, just go to ranked.rado.com. You'll find them all there. And you'll be able to see which ones we rank the highest. Let's see if I can be consistent. I believe of all of these, I probably rank Grand, the ones you listed. I rank uh, Grand, Hotel the highest, then Marco Polo, then Lorenzo. Of the Marco Polos, I prefer one to two, um, but they're both great. I'm happy playing either. I just like one. Actually, Jen likes two more than one. I like one more than two. But hey, you can mix and match them. Get them both. Um, but yeah, Hotel, and then Polo, and then uh, Magnifico. Zolkin over all of them. But again, you can find all of that at ranked.rado.com. And then he continues with a personal question, uh, which we'll get to in the personal section. And folks, I think that's it. Oh my gosh, we're done! Hooray! Okay, so uh, that means we can uh, now uh, hold on for a second, and we'll be right back. Because if I recall correctly, there was one question that was gaming-related that I thought Jen might be able to pipe in on. So hang on. We'll be right back. Welcome back. One more game question. Sadly, as folks always, please, if you have game questions for Jen, she'd happily answer them. But uh, this is the only one from Gerald who called it out. And oh, also, apologies if you're on YouTube and you just said, wait, where the heck did Rado go? Jen, uh, <laughs> it's in her writer. It's in her contract. She does three on-camera appearances a month. Rado Live, Rado, Ra or Rado Runs Away, and Rado R&R for backers of the show. And so she is not signing up for a fourth, so the camera is off, and now all you get to look at is the emails themselves. But to the question from Gerald, Honey Pie, yes. we've got two batches of games for you to pick. Okay. Batch one. Yes, I see. And, and this is if, if you could only play these three games for the rest of your life. Shadow and Crossfire, Aeon's End, and Pandemic. Or Trajan, Dominion, and Agricola. I am gonna go. Oh, that's really hard. You must pick. Oh man. Each bath. Each each bath. Yes, uh, it was a typo in the email. He said baths instead of batches, but <laughs> I'd like to have two baths. Oh, you can also for each in each of these batches, you can have two expansions. So that extends them a little bit. Uh, yeah. Not that that means anything to you, but... Well, it does, because it's different pandemics that we can play. Mm -hmm. And different... Yes, but I mean, it's different... I'm going to go with Batch B. That's what I figured. You're going to go for Trajan, Dominion, and Agricola. Yep. All righty. I, after long and careful consideration, would probably go for Crossfire, Aeon's End, and Pandemic. Yeah. And now we scroll down to the second part. 
and uh, there's nothing more to say. Basically, uh, Gerald was trying to get to the bottom of if we prefer cooperative or competitive. <laughs> and you didn't even see that sentence in the email? I didn't even. You chose three competitive games instead of three cooperative games. I was busy looking at the bath. You were too busy stuck on the fact that maybe he did that on purpose to distract you so you wouldn't be, uh, um, you know. Well, it's also he was bolded. kind of leading the witness there. Look at it. It looks like it's bolded. So. Uh, uh, he did, in fact, bold the word bath. For reasons I do not know. Because uh, I wasn't supposed to see competitive versus... Exactly. So you chose three competitive games instead oh, of three cooperative games. Oh, yes, I do see that now. What do you think that says? Um, you don't like working with people. <laughs> you like crushing and seeing them flee before you. Well, maybe not that, but I don't like being on camera. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Would uh, Batch A have been any more enticing if instead of Shadow and Crossfire, he had put in Gloomhaven, which would have been the smart one to put in? If it had been Gloomhaven, Pandemic, and Aeon's End. Oh, that's a hard, that's, that makes it unanswerable. Well, you have to answer now. Oh, okay, then I'll just say yes. Because, <laughs> I mean, either one I would be totally happy with. But which one? Do you, would you find, do you find yourself leaning towards the competitive stuff? Well, I like playing with you, so well, cooperative is really nice. Yes, but... The majority of games we play are not cooperative, and more often than not, you don't enjoy cooperative games. Hmm. Yeah, but I enjoy those, mm -hmm. so they're a good selection. And also, if they're cooperative, usually you handle all of the heavy-duty lifting. The heavy. I handle all the heavy-duty lifting anyway. Yeah. All the maintenance and upkeep and all of that. Yeah. <clears throat> but that's one of the reasons I don't like cooperative games, is there tends to be a lot more minutia. I don't know that that's true, but um, there we go, folks. That was the one gaming-related question okay, for Jen this now, week. Oh, okay, pandemic oh. has a lot of minutia. And Shadow Agricola Run. doesn't. It's not minutia. It's it's actually interesting. No, it's a, having to put out all those little pieces every round and reveal new cards and all of that stuff. There is just as much minutia no, in Agricola as Pandemic. No, there is not. Yes, there is. And, Trust me, I'm the one who handles all of it, so I know better. Gloomhaven is yes, super Glo minutiae. Gloomhaven is su super minutiae, which is maybe why he put Shatter on Crossfire instead, because it's very, very light on the minutia. Oh, I see. Maybe that's why he did that. Maybe he was anticipating the your... minutia issues. I don't know. Okay. I don't know how well Gerald knows us. Now I'm getting kind of freaked out a little bit. <laughs> if he's uh, he came up with a distraction so you wouldn't see the actual sentence because he knew you'd be drawn to a bold bath. And anyway, so that was it for the final gaming question, folks. And now hold on, we write back and go on into the personal Q&A where there will be many controversies uh, afoot. Oh, yes. We'll be right back. everybody here we go personal questions and answers and in between the filming jen just said i think i'll get the scarf finished today it might just happen we will see she's been working on for three podcasts now i think well, give if or i don't take. drop a stitch and have to take out everything i've just done fingers crossed well the first question is actually the last because henrik finally remembered to ask you for your wisdom of the month oh uh, but we will circle back around to that at the end because we always like to end on a positive note especially after this episode, I suspect, based well, on some of the stuff that's coming. Let's my my thing on. at the end isn't going to be all that positive. It's going to be a whole bunch of... Oh, yeah, that's right. Actually, whatever... I, I, Jen, actually, Henrik, anticipating you were going to ask, Jen stumbled across something at some point. She lost it, but then you found it again, right? <laughs> yep. How'd you find it? 
She um, saw something on Facebook. She absolutely loved it. She said, oh, this is going to be it. But then two days later, she couldn't find it anymore. Yeah, so I just posted on my timeline and said, hey, do you, you remember a couple days ago when somebody did this? There was a post about this. Can anybody please give me that again? And somebody found it? Yep. Did the person who made it find it? Yes, the person who posted it said, that was me. Here you go. All right. Well, you can look forward to that after we get through all the bumpy waters that are yet to come. But first, we'll have a nice softball question from Tom, <laughs> which Jen will not care about at all. Uh, Tom asks, any thoughts about the FX series Legion? And where does the character in his storyline rank in, out, among your favorites of the Marvel Universe? Jen, of course, hasn't watched it. And even if she had, she doesn't care about Marvel at all. So she'll just continue to try to avoid dropping a stitch. <laughs> while I say, I watched the first season of Legion, and I thought it was pretty cool. It was fairly slow-paced. And I here's the thing. Everything I want to watch... I have to watch pretty much after 11 o'clock at night from like 11 to 1 or 11 till 2 because that's after that's when Jen goes to sleep and then I can start watching all that kind of stuff. So a show has to be, it has to be pretty high energy. If I were watching Legion at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, I'm sure I would have been, but it's a slow-paced, languid, and thoughtful show. And it was, I was having a hard time staying awake for it. I don't think it's the fault of the show, it's the fault of the situation I'm in that just certain types of shows work better than others. But I did think it was very cool. The second season came along, and I think I started to watch the first episode, and I started to fall asleep again. And I had every intention of coming back around to it, because I liked everything about it, but I've just... That, that's the problem I've got. Um, you were about to um, oh. uh, object, though, to that. Oh, well, it's because my eyes have been so crappy for the last year. What? What? what, what that I haven't it? been going to bed and reading. So, yeah, I've been staying up later and reading oh. Facebook. Oh, I see. But now my eyes are getting better, and I'm starting to read again. Oh, okay. So you can now start watching Maybe Legion. I can start watching Legion and stay awake. Because I did think it was pretty cool. Although, where I would rank it in the Marvel Universe... Well, it's not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because it's a, it's a mutant X-Men franchise. And honestly, I'm never really that big into mutants. I've never cared for them that much. So it's fine. I'm nowhere near as excited about it as anything that's appearing on Disney+. Plus, But I would like to go back and finish it, because I did think the first season was pretty cool. Uh, certainly better than... Um, oh, what's the Netflix one? The Umbrella Academy. I, I mean, I, I definitely dug Legion more than just about anything else. What's except for Academy? the actual real Marvel cinematic stuff. What, hey, what's the Umbrella Academy? The Umbrella Academy is a superhero show on Netflix. Uh, with anybody I know? No. Okay. So brand new superheroes. Yep. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A whole Go. backstory I'd have to learn. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Can you imagine such a thing? Okay, let's move on to <laughs> Rachel, who is going to jump right into it. Would She would be interested in hearing our thoughts about the events that took place on January 6th, 2021. Wow. That, it astounds me. It astounds me that we actually had a violent coup attempt in our country. And if things had gone differently, and that, I don't know the guy's name, but the hero cop that led a bunch of people... Eugene led, Goodman. Thank you. Um, if that hadn't happened, if they had gotten Nancy Pelosi or something as a, as a hostage, or some of the senators had gotten killed, or who knows what could have happened, and it could have happened. Yes. They built a gallows. A working, functioning gallows. I, it just gives me shivers. Yeah. And I don't think anybody really understood it at the time, but there's been so much evidence that has come forth since then. 
that I think Trump should be convicted mm-hmm. um, of the most traitorous yeah. tr- crimes that uh, I just, I cannot believe it. And I also cannot wrap my mind around what is going on with, what is it, 40% of the uni- the population who supports him, mm-hmm. who are still supporting him. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those people have went, huh? Have we been had? Have we been conned? Mm-hmm. So maybe it's only 20% of the population now, or I'd like to say maybe 10%, the really diehard people that, you know, went deep into the, the conspiracy theories and stuff. But I just, I am just absolutely floored. It's so far outside of my realm of what I would have ever considered possible. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. that As it was happening on the day, for the most part, it almost seemed like Keystone Cops. You know, because most of the uh, the early footage that came out was just goofy, weird, odd stuff. Just like, well, those are a bunch of misguided people. Um, like staying within the rope lines as they were going through like the the main um, the main room and and just mostly walking around taking selfies and whatnot. But um, yeah. you know, as the days continued on and you know all the footage of the violence, um, which we didn't see right up front, started to come to the fore. Uh, it's it's shocking. Um, and I don't know. I hope, I hope that's that. I mean, and Jen's right. It's Trump. Um, Trump uh, is the ultimate culmination of what the conservative, the 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 Republican Party has been pushing as an agenda for. for well, I mean, going back well before Sarah Palin. Hey, you know who'd be a great vice president? Mm-hmm. Sarah Palin. You know, Sarah Palin leads leads to. Um, January 6th, because it signal she signals a uh, a change in attitude, um, a, a, a lack of reverence, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And I mean, but it goes way beyond, it goes way beyond that. I mean, the Republican Party bread and butter has been forever trying to convince their constituents. I mean, uh, you know, what was uh, Ronald Reagan's line? Um, there's there's no more. Uh, frightening words in the English language than I'm from the government and I'm here to help. They have been training generations of their followers to distrust government and only trust them and do what they say. And then you put somebody like Trump in charge who has no scruples and will not stop from coming around and saying the worst possible thing. Whereas, you know, the Republicans, they just want, look, do what we say. And what we say is keep voting for us. What Trump says is, do what I say, and what I say is, charge the Capitol, um, take hostages, you know, fight, trial by combat, etc., yep. um, etc. Et um, they were selling propaganda, um, sweatshirts and things that said "Civil War" on them that day. Yeah, civil war. Yep. So, and and I, I I can certainly imagine Ted Cruz and the like. They're like, oh, you know, this is just performative. This is just to rile the base, to make sure they'll keep voting for us. This is to feed meat to the base. But I, I, and I, I appreciate that they probably didn't think it would really come to this. And now that they realize, oh, it did. And this was our fault. We fermented this. Um, okay, let's pretend it didn't happen. Because they immediately go to, hey, let's move on. Um, as opposed to, it's one of the uh, singular moments in... American history. In world history, really. Uh, it's, it's really unthinkable that it happened. So it was shocking. It was atrocious. It was a day of heroism, too, with Eugene Goodman. <laughs> uh, 
you know, talk about a hero for Black History Month. Yes. But, um, yeah, it was horrible. Just horrible. But anyway, there you go, Rachel. I don't think really anybody would be surprised. Uh, I, you know, on the podcast, I have often tried to, well, but, you know, let's look at it from the other perspective. It's very difficult to do that now. It's it's so far beyond the pale. Yeah, I think people have crossed a line. Yeah, um, listen to, if you haven't, listen to, uh, you know, um, AOC um, uh, did a uh, live Instagram feed last night where she spent 90 minutes talking about what it was like to be there as there were people storming around. She could hear them on the other side of the wall shouting, where is she? Knowing they were coming for her. It's, it's, it's just insane. Um, and it makes it very, very difficult to say, well, hey, you know what? We all have differences of opinion, but let's try to put that aside. And, you know, no, we need to have uh, a, at, at, there's, a at some recognition point, that this is not normal and this is not right. Yeah, yeah, this is not cannot, a political disagreement. We can't go forward with this. This, this has is not, got to stop. Yeah, this is not people just expressing their disappointment with the system. This is something completely different. This is, um, I don't want to say a bunch of spoiled brats, but let's just say people who want what they want and they will take it. Yeah. And they don't care. Yep, uh, I just saw an article this morning. A sizable portion of the people who stormed the Capitol didn't vote. Didn't freaking vote. Well, good, because they would have voted for Trump. Well, yeah. Um, But they had their option of how to affect change in the country. And instead, they, I mean, they have been hoodwinked. They have been lied to. Many of them have been lied to their entire life. They've grown up in a culture that has been um, supported and manipulated by the Republican Party. And again, um, you know, for much longer than, than my lifetime. But, you know, as Reagan said... Uh, don't trust the government. There's nothing more scary than the government. Only trust us, the Republicans, because we want to destroy the government. Oh, maybe you can help us destroy the government. And that's what led to this. And it's... Uh, but anyway, uh, so there's a uh, spicy topic number one for the day, but we won't be done with spiciness. Uh, anyway, though, Rachel continues wondering, uh, out of curiosity, how long do I plan to wear the Black Lives Matter t-shirts? She thinks it's great that I do, but was just wondering. Okay. And also, P.S. Tell Jen I love using her glass bookmarks. They are awesome and my go-to bookmarks now. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, that's awesome. I didn't know you made glass bookmarks. Um, I make beads that go on oh, they bookmark go on. findings, basically. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So they, she had to provide the nope, bookmark? I, I, or you have I some? I had some. Yeah, okay. Cool. Um, that is awesome. So, yeah, I plan on just continuing to wear my Black Lives Matter shirts indefinitely really because it occurred to me halfway through this year that I have a platform thousands and thousands and thousands of people see me every day except not, not right now except for right now because Jen <laughs> turned the camera off I'm sorry um, and it is the more I thought about it it was it's um, irresponsible of me not to try to use my platform to champion what I think is right uh you know, I respect Stan Lee. I respect... Oh, I can't think of the creator of Star Trek all of a sudden. Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry. And I'm nowhere near as big as that. But if I can do it, if I can just through rote repetition constantly make people face up, face, you know, be presented, you know, bust their bubble and make them see, yeah, Black Lives Still Matter. Mm. And they did yesterday. And they will tomorrow. And I'm going to keep repeating that. And uh, I'd like to say until racial equality is achieved, but obviously I instead have to say, I think I'm going to be continuing to do it 
for the rest of the life of my channel. I am mixing it up because I don't have to become a one-issue t-shirt wearer, so you'll notice I'm wearing, um, you know, Free the Uyghurs, uh, you know, Green New Deal stuff, uh, gun control. I just got one about suicide prevention. I've started wearing that one, too. So you'll be seeing more of them. But yeah, you won't be seeing Black Lives Matter stop, period. Because... It's not something that can be fixed in 39 minutes. Yeah, and it's, you know, it bears repeating. Until, I will keep wearing them until it does not bear repeating. And I, I, I hope we reach a point where I can stop wearing them. But that's that. Yes, Honey Pie? You are about to say something? I just agree. Alrighty. Well then, let's move on to probably some uh, lighter topics. Uh, we go to James, <clears throat> who apologized for skipping the salutation last time. Sorry, James. No biggie. Uh, I was just joking around. Alrighty. And he appreciated our response to his mail. He appreciates being able to act with creators on YouTube. And alrighty. So, he has a long email. So... Now that you're showing them the whole emails, is there any personal well, stuff that you need to be careful about? I am being careful about that. Okay. Sometimes people, I mean, they, yeah. you, you can't see email addresses, just uh, names. So I'm still, people are just mostly seeing, this is from James. Because you can see, you can see everything, but if you look over there, that's what I'm actually recording. Oh, okay. See, that's the top. I mean, that's off the top of okay. the screen I'm recording. Yeah, but don't they often send you personal, you know, stories and things that... Yeah, and I read them out loud, so... Okay, just checking. Yep. I mean, I'm, well, I think it's been fine so far. Uh, okay. But anyway, so James writes a lot of text. And uh, when I get a really long one, I'm just going to kind of skim it and look for the question. Because generally what I do is, oh, and it looks like he's got golden rule, platinum rule questions. Oh, no. Yep. Um, it looks like golden rule, platinum rule is joining the tabletop simulator repeat. Uh, maybe we'll get a, uh, was Marty really have character growth in Back to the Future as well? Um, let's see. So, all right. All right, we're just going to have to skim this really quick. Sorry, folks. Um, in fact, I'm just going to pause and read it really quick so I can respond to summarize James' questions. And we'll be right back. Or no, we'll be right back. I'm just going to pause and you won't even know it. <laughs> okay, yes, this is a long one. If you're watching on YouTube, you can go on ahead and pause and read the whole thing for yourself. But James was basically making another counterpoint about the Platinum Rule versus the Golden Rule. And as a summary of that, because two months ago I'd never even heard of the Platinum Rule. Golden Rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Platinum Rule, do unto others as they would prefer. Or, it's a better way to put it, but um, it's basically... Uh, golden Rule is treat others how I would like to be treated. Platinum Rule is treat others how they would like to be treated. That's basically what it comes down to. And, um, and James was making further points about how you could argue that the Golden Rule is very selfish because it puts you at the center. You trying to ascribe your own motives, your own feelings, your own wants and desires on somebody else. And that may not be fair. That may not quite... Uh, reach the same, you know, the, the best possible results. Whereas the Platinum Rule, I had argued the fundamental problem with the Platinum Rule is how can I truly know what another person wants? I could take my best educated guess, but I know deep in my own heart of hearts what, I, what it means to treat me with respect and dignity and all the rest of it. So just do, um, you know, and, unless I'm somebody who's literally a sadomasochist and wants people to, hmm, um, you know, belittle me or, uh, you know, if that's the case, then the golden rule does not apply, but um, basically, uh, James, my response to all that is, the interesting thing about the golden rule is, it's kind of got a bit of a loophole built in. When I say, I would, I, I would like you to do unto me 
or, or do unto others as you do unto yourself. Part of what I want people to do when they are thinking about how they want to attract me or how to interact with me is take into account my feelings. And boom, instantly done. The platinum rule is completely enclosed within the golden rule. Certainly, as much as anything else, I want people who, who deal with me in a day-to-day -day life to treat me, um, but to take into account my wants, my needs, my situation, my circumstances, or whatever. That is how I would want you to treat me, and that is why I should treat you that way. So what the golden rule is saying, um, you know, part of it is also take into account the needs of other people because you want that for yourself. That is the definition of the platinum rule. So boom, boom, I think I have once and for all <laughs> solved the uh, gold platinum rule uh, in that they are really very simpatico. Um, and, uh, I, and, I, and hopefully that works for you too, buddy. Okay, then we will move on. Sorry, folks, it was just a, it was a very long email. You can check out the, on YouTube if you want to see the whole thing. Uh, because he, he, it was very well thought out, very passionately argued. All right. But oh, we got a lot of questions. I couldn't read the whole thing. Okay. So, and we move right on to Nathan, who's uh, platinum versus gold. It's a second philosophical discussion Ooh. about the platinum and golden rules. All righty. So, and he says right up front, this turned into a longish one. And oh my goodness. Yes, it is. Again, if you're on YouTube, isn't it nice that you can go on ahead and pause and read all of this? Um, it is quite a bit. And I, I'm afraid it's just a bit too much to uh, you know read the whole thing verbatim because it goes on for quite a while. Um, but anyway, I, I do see a question. I asked in response to this in the last podcast, how do you know what someone else wants you to do unto them? The answer is you ask. I'm going to stop you right there and say I believe I just addressed this in the previous one. The golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think I would have anybody do unto me by trying to find out what it is I want and what I need and ask. And therefore, the golden rule triumphs. Because this is really, at the end of the day, a, a, a closed cage steel match between gold and platinum and nothing else. <laughs> when in fact, this is all, I mean, all of this is just, you know, different twists on the just be a good, kind person and try to treat others with respect and um, and try to walk a mile in their shoes. I have said on this podcast many times over the years when people have asked, and I don't know why they keep asking me this, but um, you know what is the most uh, important trait in humanity? And I've always said empathy. And I think, I mean, uh, James in the last one argued empathy is the definition of the platinum rule. I would say empathy uh, is the number one way you should treat everybody. It's how I want to be treated empathetically. And so the golden rule still applies. All righty. Um, That's very tidy. Yes, I, I've, I've wrapped it up in a nice little bow. <laughs> and uh, then we move on to hobbies. Uh, because Nathan points out, we seem to spend a lot of time on board gaming. Uh, is it still a hobby or is it a job now? And uh, what uh, hobbies do we have outside of board games? James is specifically thinking things like clubs, sports, theater, bowling, etc., etc. Avoiding getting COVID? Uh, That's my favorite hobby. Yes. Um, also things like collecting, comic books, Legos, raising chickens, etc. So, Honeypie, what are your hobbies? Um, gosh, I've always said walking the dogs, scuba diving, knitting, glass, of course. Um, I like crafting. Basically, well, here's making the thing. anything... Here's the problem. Uh, you said glass. Glass is not your hobby. Jen has a tendency to try to turn her hobbies into careers. Uh, many, 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 many years ago, 
she got a master, when we were living in Oregon, she actually took the course and got a master gardener's degree. Jen is a certified master gardener, I believe. Yeah, it's not a degree, really. It's just, you're a master gardener. Well, it sounds good. Okay. Um, and so what did she do with that? Uh, you know, she, she tried to become just, you know, uh, enjoy her garden more. No, no, no. She tried to make a uh, scented geranium business uh, because, uh, you know, she couldn't just have it as a hobby, gardening. She had to try to turn it into a career. Um, and, you know, she can't just make glass for fun. Uh, she determines how well she's doing by how well she sells. And um, you have not tried to turn knitting into a career yet. No. Um, and why is that? Why aren't you trying to sell these scarves on Etsy? Because they... they Too slow? $7,000 for a scarf. Uh -huh. <laughs> they had to pay me for my time. That's how much they'd have to pay. <laughs> yeah. So you better like this one that I'm working on. I've been working I'm, on it for three years. It, it looks great. I'm very excited about it. Um, so... And, and, you know, here's the thing. Um, you could say, oh, no, but Jen clearly just does chickens out of the love of chickens. It's just a hobby. Nope. Jen has often thought, well, you know what we can do? If we get enough uh, egg throughput, we could sell these excess eggs. So the chickens are self-sustaining, paying for themselves. They're an enclosed ecosystem, economy, business thing. Yep. That's just the way Jen thinks. Can't help it. Yep. And um, it's kind of rubbed off on me, I guess, because I just like board games, but I've turned it into a career. Uh, so non-career hobbies. Okay. I mean, I would say you, you're all right, knitting. I mean, you, you are doing that for no reason. There's no financial gain to yeah. knitting this scarf and the hats you've made and other stuff. So that's one hobby I think you have. Yeah, I mean, scuba diving is a hobby that we've enjoyed. But we haven't done it for years. Um, we oh. moved to Malta. We're going to do lots of scuba diving. We never once got our toe in the water in all the years we lived in Malta. I did a lot of um, snorkeling. Yes, but... And there's not a lot to see in Malta. People come from around the world to scuba dive the Malta shores. They have some of the best wreck dives in the world, mm. is what I was constantly told. And we always talked about it. We just never did it. Yeah. Another hobby I would say we used to have and have not done for years is uh, geocaching. Yep. Geocaching, I would say, that's probably the closest we've come to a sustained hobby uh, where we didn't either stop or try to turn it into a business. <laughs> um, but we haven't done it for years now either, which is too bad. Uh, when did we stop? We we hmm. did a lot of geocaching when we first moved to Malta. Yeah. And then we just stopped doing it when we went on trips. And there wasn't really much to do in Malta. And Well, we used to do it with Dad and Nance yeah. on the trips with them. So I wouldn't say we stopped. I think we just we haven't been traveling much. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe. Maybe. Alrighty. So, and for me, I my only other hobby is TV is media consumption. Uh, oh, Jen, I, I guess, uh, I, I think people would consider Jen a hobbyist book reader because she reads such high volume of books. She's not a casual book reader at all. Uh, she is very, very serious about her book reading. So I would say that's a real hobby for her, but not for me. Me, it's just consuming media and, uh, and I mean, we, we started jogging for a while, but we didn't stick to that. We stopped doing that. So there is walking the dogs, but I mean, for it to really be a hobby, I think that had to be, okay, where are we going to get in the car and drive to today? What entirely new place are we going to, you know, and where it's like, no, we just walk the dogs in the evening. So mm. that's, that's more of a ritual than a hobby. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. So we're kind of hobbyless. I like making anything. Mm -hmm. I, I like going to classes and just doing little one-off classes of, you know, silk painting or, um, what's that painting called that? The drippy the painting. The pour painting. The, yeah, paint pours. Um, did that for a little while. Got some stuff. But, I mean, none of those ever turn into ongoing hobbies, though. Those are just like, oh, that was a fun, interesting thing to do, and I'm done with it now. Let's move on to the next thing, pretty much, right? Although you often do invest and say, no, I'm going to do a lot more of this, and then it just never happens. So... Yeah. 
Right? Yeah, I don't think they ever convert. You, you, you go in with the best of intentions, hoping it'll turn into a hobby, but then it doesn't. Well, I think also we just have full lives. Mm -hmm. And so you have to pick and choose what you're going to spend your time on. And the majority of my time, I like to spend on glass. Yes. We do have a lot of games. So by full lives, uh, lives full of games is basically what Jen meant, um, which is a bit odd. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people when COVID hit and they were home, they were like, ah, oh, I'm going to clean out my closet. I'm going to do this and that and something else and all sorts of stuff. Our lives just kind of kept on keeping on. Mm -hmm. and we we just have busy... and we, we lived on Malta basically in a COVID situation for six years mm -hmm. in that we were pretty much self-isolating anyway. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is just this is just how we live. Yep. So um, my closets have not yet been gone through. <laughs> 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 They're still a mess. All right. Well, there you go. There's the hobbies. Okay. And if we move on, we will come to Tim, who says, uh, he already has questions, comments, and other mail, but he wanted to send in, uh, send this in its own separate mail. Free for you to include this in the doggo post. Uh, but it's the doggo oh. post because Tim says, I don't have a dog. I have a dog. <laughs> and uh, we call him a sexy so-and-so. He lives in this box. Well, I would say most of him lives in that box. Uh -huh. He is clearly expanding outside Indeed. of yeah, his yeah. box. Yeah, he, he's got, a, he's got a plans for outside the box. This, for folks who can't see it, again, as always, go to dogs.rado.com or doggo.rado.com, and you will see some lovely pictures of Doug. Here he is. He wants you to draw him like one of your French girls, <laughs> uh, some Titanic Doug. And this was shortly after we moved into our current town home. He didn't take long to get used to the new place. Mm. Uh, he is a very uh, saucy boy, it would appear. I'm Doug. All right. Yeah. And so he's lovely. Yep. So apparently now it's dogs and cats uh, is what we've moved on to, especially because I didn't mention this in the last one, but on the previous one, Nathan, uh, in addition to oh. asking about gold and platinum and hobbies, had some cat pictures as well. Well, you didn't show me the cat I know, because I knew this other one was coming, and oh. so I just like tie all up into one. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and uh, that, that is a cat, and he has descriptions in the next one. So, this, I believe he said, uh, uh, hold on a second. Let's go to the descriptions because that was in a whole different email. All right. The white one is a stray that comes in to steal food occasionally. I'm trying to make friends with it. Uh, the oh, comma wow. is gravy, my brother's cat that I'm looking after. And the half and half is kitty, my rescue cat of five years who died early last Aww. year. We're very sorry about that, Nathan. Hopefully, um, uh, gravy is filling in the gap. But so this is the wild cat who sneaks in to steal food and who maybe will become a member of the family. Although, doesn't look like he trusts you. <laughs> he's, he's looking a little suspiciously. Definitely you. giving you the side eye. And again, folks, these are at dogs.rado.com, these cat pictures. And then this is the... Uh, uh, watching said the, the comma, so yep. that must be oh, the shape it's, it's, of the cat. Oh, it's a comma. That's cute. Yeah. And then we're very sorry. Oh, and... Oh, oh he's man. lovely. Yeah, that was the best kitty pick. Alrighty. Well, thank you for sharing that, Nathan. Um, all right. And so we had that, and then we also had Doug. Doug is awesome, too. Uh, Doug is lovely as well. But that was just a brief picture sojourn. Let's get back to um, Marlon, who has some political questions and some stuff. Alrighty. Uh, do you think there's a way back now that the political boundaries we used to know since the uh, old way, back to the political boundaries we used to know since the old ways crumbled? Will Trumpism last? Sadly, Joe Biden didn't add Andrew Yang to his cabinet, which I guess is a separate thing. Um, I, 
I would like to think it's a bit of a fever dream. I, uh, you know, I, I think while it's, you know, there was an underlying issue and there continues to be an underlying issue, which I talked about before, this generational stance that the Republican, uh, the Republicans take that government is an actively harmful thing. And that is a corrosive message that generations of people have grown up with and they have taken it in on themselves. And to me, with the benefit of hindsight now, after the 6th of January, it's only natural that sooner or later someone will come along and leverage and abuse that. And that's what happened. I genuinely, for for how much I detest Ted Cruz, I don't believe he wants to um, you know, tear down the United States government. He is just using this long-standing um, con, this long con the Republicans have been doing to, uh, you know, to stay, to you know, to to stay in a place of power. I mean, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He's probably subject to that con as well. He probably, on some level, believes, yeah, government is bad. That's he was a uh, was it called the the teacup, the Tea Party? Yeah, he was a Tea Partier. He came to Washington to tear government down. So, but I think when faced with, oh, this is what tearing down government. I, I suspect you won't be seeing quite as much from them. And with with Trump completely sidelined now. Um, I mean, I think that's good. You unfortunately have, what is it, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, um, you know, it would be interesting to see. I think it's very important to watch her and see if, if she is allowed to continue in a very, very Trumpy type mold, which is just all about tear it all down. Everything you're being told is lies. It's all corrupt. Um, and, and, you know, and all her QAnon garbage. It seems like the Republicans will step up and censor her. And if they do, that's probably the healthiest thing we can see that the garbage... Wow, you know, let's not let her to become another Trump. Maybe we should uh, uh, put a lid on that. Maybe, um, you know, staying in power is not something we should do at any cost, because they just recently saw what that cost could be. I mean, it's really um, reaffirming that Mitch McConnell stepped forward and said she's spewing garbage, and that she is a cancer to the Republican Party. Um, you know, I rarely say it, but good on you, Mitch. That's true. You know who else was? Donald Trump. Where were you for the last four years, buddy? You were there five years ago when you were calling him a cancer before he got elected, but then, oh, he'll serve my purposes. Obviously, Green doesn't serve your purposes yet. Hopefully, they can get themselves under control. Um, I do think that the vast majority of people do not want to have a civil war. It's a very, very small minority of people, but um, a, more, a bigger group of people can get spurred to action uh, if they're part of a crowd. Because oh, once yeah. you're in a crowd, everything changes. Um, you know, it's, it's like a, almost a mass hypnosis where a small group of actors can have a big, big influence. And basically, you have a sizable portion of the American public that has been in a kind of crowd-like hypnosis for the last four years, feeding on a non-stop um, diet of fake news. When in fact, the news has not been fake. The con man has been lying to you and tricked you into believing the news was fake. So, I, I'd like to think we could turn around. I Hopefully, the six was a wake-up call that makes the Republicans realize, yeah, you know, if we keep playing with fire like this, we'll get burned too. Because if they had found Pence... They would have, um, they, he would not have fared much better than AOC, quite frankly. And uh, I think that's something they all have to reckon with, while, of course, never admitting in, at all publicly their own culpability. 
So fingers crossed. And yes, it's a shame. Oh, I, I don't know. To hear Yang say it, uh, he made the choice not to, because he was being discussed, it, it was ongoing discussions, and he decided, you know what, I can do more as a mayor of New York City than I can as, um, you know, the head of, of urban development or whatever in the federal government. And, I mean, I've heard him say that on his podcast, that that was a choice they made, and, you know, and it makes sense. I mean, he's a lifelong New Yorker, and, uh, you know, it, it lays the groundwork for him building up to bigger things, and uh, all I can say is, I've never really cared about New York politics before, but I do now. And all eyes uh, turn to New York and we'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, next question. Jen will have nothing to say about this. Because, <laughs> have you seen the latest season of The Expanse? No, Jen quit like three episodes into the first season of The Expanse. But I have. I've been keeping up. What are our thought, my thoughts on it? And hypothetically, how does it compare to Star Trek technology and the political situation in the future? We might really see... And which one will likely be the truth? <laughs> um, well, obviously, The Expanse is all about hard science and real looks at what our technological future is. So it certainly wins in that. We are not going to be likely having tra transporters. I'm sorry, it's probably never going to happen. Um, but holodecks aren't too far outside their own... Or the equivalent of holodecks are certainly on the way. And uh, But, yeah, so I mean, they both get some things right. Uh, because The Expanse, I believe... Does uh, you know it's in such a rush to have such a pessimistic of oh you know what all of mankind's problems will be with us forever because what you're talking about in the in the third season of or whatever the fifth season now of the expanse the whole storyline is about what's effectively happened there's now a three way schism between Earth Mars and the Belt and um, a Belter has basically become the science fiction equivalent of Osama bin Laden striking out against uh, Earth and it's basically plunged the whole system into the brink of war and all. All this kind of stuff. And so and it's, all, it's obviously very, very timely. Um, I don't believe that's our future. I do believe the Star Trek future of, uh, of uh, what's it called? Um, when you don't have any resource problems. I can't think. Uh, oh. Um, why can't I think of it? Post-scarcity. Post-scarcity. We do have a post-scarcity future. Some of us will have it sooner than others, but it will eventually be here for all. And um, you know what? It's possible there are people listening to this podcast where it might happen to them in their lifetime, quite frankly. Um, you know, it could come on pretty quick with the uh, advent of AI and truly reaching technology where human beings don't have to do anything. That is, and that's the fundamental thing that the Expanse gets wrong. Every time I see on the Expanse, oh, we need pilots to fly these ships. No, no, you don't. You, in the future, you do not need pilots to man the guns or fly the ships or load the ships or all these menial things or be the bartender. All of those <laughs> jobs will be gone. Everything is going to be automated. And it's going to fundamentally change what it means to be human. When the only things we can do, um, if we want to think of them as a career, are creative and all about helping and outreach and, um, you know, about making scientific breakthroughs. That's what people will be raised to do instead of raised to work in a coal mine. Because there will be no coal jobs. There will be no driver jobs. And so, Expanse gets it wrong. Um, Star Trek gets that right. So, I think we're probably on the way to Star Trek. And yeah, 
Expanse is maybe a step we have to go through to get there, but I think post-scarcity... Post-scarcity in America could be here now. I'm sure everybody's heard many, many times that more food is thrown away in our country every day than is needed to feed every single person. We throw away more food than we would need to feed everybody. There is more empty, vacant housing in our country than there are homeless people in our country. We could give them all some place to live. There is more than enough for everybody here. And um, it's just the old-fashioned, I got mine, Jack, pull yourself up by your bootstraps attitude is holding us back on a species level. And we will eventually get over it because uh, it's not too far in the future that you will not be able, the majority of jobs we know of today will be gone. We will not have doctors. We will not have lawyers. We will not have accountants. All of this stuff will be gone. And we will have a reckoning. And rather than kill each other, we'll realize, oh, we have more time to play games now. <laughs> Maybe we should do that. Or garden. Or, or garden. Or write poetry. Or take pictures. Or help our neighbors. Or spend time with our family. Yeah. And that is our future. We just have some bumpy roads to get over to get to it. Um, and that's why I keep reminding myself. Okay. Uh, Marlon then asks, are there any progress on the plans, especially due to the recent political drama, on our move back to Europe? And if so, will it be to the UK? Never-ending road trip. Or if budget <laughs> isn't a problem, what city would you want to settle? Ooh. Well, I don't know that we can settle outside of England anymore because of we're not EU citizens. Mm-hmm. So um, that may have just been taken away from us. And I believe Americans can only spend three months in any one of the European countries at a time. But so, we're not American, we're British. Yeah, I don't know what the rules are going to be. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if they've even sorted that out yet. <clears throat> but um, so that kind of put a kibosh. We, when we became British citizens, we thought this is great because now we could live in France, we could live in Italy, we could live in Spain, whatever. It's all fine. Yeah. That was it. Was very, very exciting future. Yep. Except for a whole bunch of conservatives in England who basically conned a bunch of people based on racist issues into voting against their own best interest. And, what do you know, we voted against our interests as well. Um, yeah, Trump is an aberration. Brexit is a systemic wound. Um, it's a much bigger problem than Trump would ever possibly be. Trump always had an expiry date. Brexit does not. Brexit is going to just continue to hurt everyone in the world on some level. Because it's the opposite of what we need to be doing as a species. Yep. Coming together. Coming together. Yep. Yep. We are stronger and better together and working together and cooperating. Yeah. And every school kid knows this. Um, but Nigel Farage seems to have not gotten the memo. But anyway, regardless. So, um, right. Getting away from the politics. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, what, what's the show... There's a Walking the Devon and Cornwall <gasps> Countryside with Julia Bradbury, I think. Or We've words been that enjoying effect. that, yeah. Um, yeah, which is just Julia Bradbury walking around Devon and Cornwall. Yep. Um, and seeing people and talking to people. And, and it, that's like that's like UK porn for Jen. <laughs> um, you know, every episode, she's like, she just brings up um, British equivalent, you know, hot pads, websites. <laughs> of, okay, what are houses going for in that area? <laughs> I did. Yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think actually I do, I love, I loved living in England though. And there's so much of England I haven't seen yet. And I think it's the sense of history maybe, or uh, the sense of timelessness that England has that is so attractive to me. Um, and I don't have that same feeling about America because it's a much younger country. Mm -hmm. Um 
so as much as I, I've been enjoying living in America and in our living in Washington State, the beauty and the mountains and the sea and the, the greenery and all sorts of beat. wonderful things. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Um, I still think maybe, no, not, not maybe. My heart is still belongs to England. I would like to propose, as I have on several occasions, thinking a bit more northward. How about the Scottish glens and the highlands <laughs> and, uh, and the lochs and all that? Because I would personally rather move back to England and while we still can take up residence in Scotland, do our time there to get Scottish citizenship in time for the inevitable breakup of Scotland leaving the UK. I think it'll happen in our lifetime so that they can rejoin the EU. And I would like to ride on their coattails. Never mind the fact that my favorite accent in the world is Scottish. I just love listening to Scottish people all day long. <laughs> um, I was so happy working with Jen and John and uh, uh, Angus at uh, Lionhead. I just could just, oh, just talk to me. I don't care what your problems are. I'm not going to fix them. I just need you to tell me what your problems are. And I'll, and I'll be a good listener. <laughs> I can't even understand what you're saying. I cannot understand you, but... I didn't, I can. Yeah. Um, right. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind Scotland, except it's cold. But it won't be. Get 50 years from now, England is, South yes. England is going to be very, South of England is going to be like South of France, South of Spain. Mm, and um, Scotland is going to be, is going to have the climate you want from England. Do you think the midges will go away? <sighs> the midges are a problem. I think science will solve the midges eventually. Okay. Maybe we'll just I, walk around wearing, um, like, beekeeper outfits. There you go. Midge outfits. Yep. But yeah, um, I, I think we're definitely, although I wouldn't mind um, also coming back here, say, in the wintertime or something and, and spending some time in the States in, in England's winter, because it is a bit dreary, darling. Well, like I said, that's, give it 30 years. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, that's it, true. It'll be a very different situation. Yeah. Um, but right. if budget isn't a problem. Yes, if budget if isn't a problem. Citizenship isn't a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, quite frankly, if budget doesn't exist, citizenship is not a problem. Pay enough money, you can That's live wherever true. you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could have bought Maltese citizenship. Yep. Um, which would, then we would have been EU members yep. and mm -hmm. all of this would be moot. Yep. Anyway, um, I don't know that settling in any one place is on my radar at this point because I haven't found anywhere that I love enough mm -hmm. to settle. Mm -hmm. Other than, I, like I said, my heart does love England. But I would like to spend a sizable portion of time three, six months, get a long let time in Rome. And I would like to do a extended road trip around Italy, meaning maybe a year, just traveling around in Italy, seeing what's to be seen and enjoying all the historic stuff. And... Why? I mean, we've done a lot of time in Italy. No, we, not really. We've, we've been done, done Rome. We've done Venice. We've done Milan. We've done Sicily. We've... I think that's it. Well, there's some areas um, around Venice and stuff we also have also done. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just think we haven't we haven't had enough time there. All right. And I want to do Florence. I want to do all of the I guess sort of medieval uh, Renaissance kind of cities. I would like to spend some serious time there because there's so much to be seen and so much to do. Okay. Yeah. So, but I would like to spend some some serious time in Rome. I think I'd like to maybe spend three months in uh, Venice. All right. And Jeez, Louise, really? I know. I, I, I was done with it in a week. I know. It's I like it. All right. It's beautiful. I'm not saying it's not. I, well, for now. That's not true. Not much longer. That's true. Um, 
recently we saw that uh, Ewan McGregor did a thing about the the northbound or the storm the stormborn. Storm yes. And that was all about northern Scotland and Norway and Iceland. That's correct. Yes. And that was really beautiful. So I think I would like to spend a a winter up somewhere in there, one of those, maybe <laughs> northern Scotland, mm -hmm. and uh, really just get all hugly <laughs> with it. Hugly, yes. What about New Zealand? You haven't said New Zealand. I, I still want to get to New Zealand, but... But that seems very low on your list compared to everything you just uh, rattled off. It's very far away. Yeah? It's very far away. So is Malta. No, not really. It's two hours from England. <laughs> I think it was more like three or four hours, but I get what you mean. Yeah, well, and you had to get there for two hours early or whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I do want to get to New Zealand, but, it, you know, at this point it's just, oh, it's a whole other part of the world. Oh, I want to get to Thailand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, oh, there's so much still to do. Okay. All right. Moving on. Uh, can Jen say something about the latest books or podcasts that have made an impact on her habits or life insights? Oh. Well, I've just recently started reading again, um, so I don't really have any latest books to, to tell you about. Um, I've been enjoying the Andrew Yang podcast. I listen to the Ezra Klein podcast Do as you? well. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, but I haven't really listened to Freakonomics for a while. And I was listening a lot to Tim Ferriss, but I don't know. I've kind of gone off of him for, I don't know. I think maybe I've heard of it. I've heard him a lot. Heard enough. Yep. Um, so that's what I'm listening to at the moment. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't put you on to Ezra Klein. Yes, you did. Did I? Yeah. When did I do that? All right. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I didn't know that. All righty. Um, and then finally, Marlon asks about Danielle Tassini. Now, a lot of people asked. I probably well over a dozen emails asking about Danielle Tassini. So um, I'm going to save that and similar stuff until the end. So Marlon, I won't address yours specifically, but we'll just keep on moving on and we'll get to all of that uh, closer to the end because we're not done with controversial stuff. And uh, yeah, no game questions. So that was it for Marlon. Let's move it right along to Ooh. Nigel, who has yet another, remember this dog's name? No. Charlie. Oh. It's Charlie. What's happened to his face? Uh, he seems to have some mud in his eye. Got mud in your eye, Charlie. And uh, Nigel hopes we're doing well. Again, folks, go to dogs.rawo.com. Anyway, uh, Nigel continues. Following the announcement by Borden... Okay, yeah, this was, a Dan this was another Danielle Tassini. The only reason I left this in uh, is because I wanted Jen to see uh, Charlie. I think he did say something. He said... Uh, di -di -di oh, where was it? He had a joke. Oh, yeah. Uh, the attacks picture of Charlie actually got into a mud puddle and came out with a new romantic look. Yes. Oh, eyeliner. Yes, he's got some eyeliner. And he is a noble beast, that, that <laughs> Charlie. We love Charlie. Okay. We'll get back to Tassini in a, moment, in a bit. All right. Moving along to Andre, who's a longtime supporter of the show. Oh, oh another Tassini uh, email. Let's see, was there something else in here? Oh yes, um, so you had about Tassini, but then he had another one, which nobody else asked about, uh, which is basically, can I touch on censorship in general and Board Game Geek in particular? Because in the light of everything that's gone on with Danielle Tassini, uh, Andre points out that he knows a lot of censorship on Board Game Geek. Uh, you know, sure, the subject of, Tess of the Tassini uh, uh, issue is a minefield, but censoring uh, something to the point of being unreadable, uh, and then even censoring pointing out that 
pointing that out seems like overkill, says uh, Andre, and so what are my thoughts on it? My thoughts are, it is defined by, definitionally, is it definitionally a word? No. Is by its very definition, not <laughs> censorship. Because the Board Game Geek is not the public square. Nobody has the right to say anything they want on a privately owned uh, message forum, which is what Board Game Geek is. Just like people don't have the right to come and stand in our front yard and plant signs saying whatever they want, I have the right to say, nope, sorry, that sign's gone. And Board Game Geek has the right to say, sorry, that sentiment is gone. As a platform, we do not support it. Um, we are not interested in a, an equal and fair exchange of ideas if one side of the ideas we find to be toxic and problematic. We are not interested in providing a platform for that. I'm very sensitive to this, Andre, because this is what I've learned I have to do as well. Uh, ever since I started wearing BLM shirts, every day I get you know, sometimes only a couple, sometimes a half dozen, sometimes more people um, wanting to engage. Of course, I get lots of people saying I'm a race trader and all kinds of other stuff too, with really nasty stuff. But I just get a lot of people, oh, look, I'm just here to have an exchange of ideas in the marketplace of ideas. And, and only through this kind of capitalistic view of idea exchange can we come to a better... And like, no. That's not true at all. I have definitely come to the conclusion, well, a couple of conclusions, based on my limited experience with this. One is there are many people who will come ostensibly to just have a debate, have a discussion. Look, I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong, just want to get all the ideas out who are not arguing in good faith. Uh, they're called sea lions, and all they're there to do is just spread their ideas and completely deflect anything. And I have seen it now too many times to, and I recognize nothing good comes from it other than um, it uh, just sucks me dry. And so I just got to the point where I created blm.rado.com, and when one of those people posts, I say, please see blm.rado.com, and then I delete their post. I censor them. But again, it's my front yard. You don't get to my, come to my front yard and post an All Lives Matter sign. Because to heck with that, I will say, because children might be listening. Well, they probably shouldn't be by now, but I'm still trying to keep it clean. And that's what Board Game Geese has decided to do as well, and honestly, I do support it. And it's an unenviable position because, I mean, you're right, it does kind of, it makes a minefield of some threads. But you know what? There are many, many other threads. And Board Game Geek, more than anything else, its charter mandate is to spread positive, uplifting message of board gaming. And that's it. It is not there to give a voice to people who um, think that, well, you know what, there's no such thing as systemic racism, really. You know, the Ben Shapiro's of the world, they've got their own platforms they can go on, and Board Game Geek doesn't support that, and I don't support it, and I support Board Game Geek not supporting it. And at the end of the day, Board Game Geek is not a uh, government entity. They are under no obligation to give anybody the right to just say whatever they want. In much the same way, we are not legally allowed to uh, shout fire in a crowded theater. Um, and I don't think I don't see anybody having a problem with that. Uh, I don't see all the no. Well, I feel like I should be able to shout fire in a crowded theater. Um, you know what? You'll get kicked out if you do that. And if you shout censorship, well, you're being kind of silly. And if you want to come to Board Game Geek and express, uh, or, yo. You know, basically, taking the stance that, you know what, everybody has a right to express their opinion, whatever it is, 
That means on some level you are... Uh, what's a better way to put this? Sitting on the fence and not taking a side is implicitly supporting the worst side. Allowing the side that says all lives matter um, and uh, other thinly veiled racist tropes is not something that Skalt and Borgamy want to do, and it's not something I want to do either, because it me if you're not full-throated in favor of positivity, inclusivity, equality, you don't have a place on Board Game Geek, and Board Game Geek is fine if you leave. You can leave and go someplace else. There are many, many other places you can go. And uh, I think that's totally fine. And I don't view it as censorship. I view it as taking control of a community that they want to maintain. And that's fine. So, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Hey, Pyre, should we move on to the next one? Um, I would just say almost setting a good example mm -hmm. is what he's doing. Mm. Is This is this is the waterline we are going to stick to. And yeah, yep. we do not go below this. Sounds good. And that's fine with me too. All right, Kelly is back and wonders if we've ever considered moving my mom to Malta or England rather than coming back to the US. US. Believe me, uh -huh. that was definitely our preferred solution to the problem. We really wanted to do that. We did a lot of research into what would have to happen. For her healthcare needs as an American living overseas and... and the rules and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And while mom never had any interest in moving to England, she really wanted to move to Malta. When she first found we moved to Malta, she literally went out and bought dream luggage. Suitcases. Suitcases. Yep. Uh, basically, for an aspirational, someday I will pack these suitcases and I will go to Malta and I will see my son and my daughter-in-law. And it's a dream of mine, in part, as silly as it sounds, because Popeye Village is there. <laughs> and, um, but there are other reasons, too. And so she really wanted to do it, but... Um, she, her medical situation pretty much made that impossible. Both because of... The aforementioned issues with insurance that she would not be eligible for. I think we did find a way. It was weird. She could have come to Malta if she declared herself as a dependent of me. Yep. There would have been a loophole where she could have been my dependent, and then she could have had health insurance. So, but that was kind of iffy. And we're like, I don't know if we're really comfortable with this. But then the other issue was, um, before we moved back to the States and, and she moved in with us and she started living healthier and now she does a treadmill and all that, she was so bad that with her HHT, which is hereditary hemio... something or other, HHT, you can Google it, um, she basically got massive nosebleeds that would bleed, losing pints of blood, um, you know, that would go on for hours. She literally could not fly because it might kill her, in effect. Um, because it, it, it would not be conducive to the attacks and the, that she was subject to. So she was terrified of the idea. She always wanted to. We often talked many times about, Mom, we'll put you on a boat. Yep. We'll we put you on a slow boat. All the research for that. Yep, we did a lot of research on all this stuff. But in the end of the day, I think inertia is a powerful force. And fear is a powerful force, and it just it didn't work out, and it, it you know it had gotten so bad, her situation was so bad, and it just became obvious. Okay, she's never going to come to us. We have to go to her. Yep, and that's basically what it came down to. Okay, and then Kelly also asked, how do I rank the Marvel Comics Universe movies, the MCU? <laughs> You're in luck, Kelly, Ooh. because completely unrelated to this, I recently stumbled across a website. Oh, what's it called? Oh, shoot. Um, it's a movie database. It's like Letterboxd, I think. 
but without any, I mean, look, uh, letterboxed. Yeah, letterboxed. I will log in. And anybody can do this. If you go to letterboxd.com slash Rotto, I think? Is it slash Rotto? Is it as simple as that? Yes, you can find my profile, and you will find I have lists, and I have three lists on here. My How I break down all the Star Trek films, all the Star Wars films, all the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and my own personal top ten films. So that's available for anybody. But since you asked about the MCU, uh, which again, you can get at Letterboxd, which is L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D, not E-D, B-O-X-D, Letterboxd.com uh, slash Rotto. Uh, the MCU. Let's do the countdown. At number 23, Thor Dark World. Number 22, The Incredible Hulk. Number 21, Doctor Strange, which I think some people might be surprised by. But uh, upon a recent, uh, I don't know, six months ago, while Jen was um, MIA, Mom and I sat and watched the entirety of the MCU in chronological order. Or not chronological, or you know, in release order. So they were all fairly fresh in my mind. And I realized that was the third time I'd seen Doctor Strange. And oh my god, that is basically just an hour and a half of exposition. That is just an hour and a half of explainer box. Um, <laughs> and you know, I mean it, it has very little, you know, you know, the whole do, you know, say do don't say or whatever. Um, it was all say, very little do. So I rank it down. Even though I like it, I like all these movies and I love most of them. But anyway, uh, number 21, Doctor Strange. Number 20, Iron Man 2. Uh, number 19, the original Thor. Number 18, Black Panther. Probably another controversial, seeing as how I believe it's the only one that's nominated for an Academy Award, and with good reason. And it's a great movie. The special effects really let it down, um, you know, because it was, it was such a, a rush job of a movie, as I understand it. And um, I really, uh, there were some elements. I mean, obviously, everything to do with Killmonger is fantastic. The the middle act of oh, is he dead? I don't know. That was just all kind of a bit rote. So it starts off incredibly strong. Except for the special effects, I think it ends strong. Although, the, you know, the, the the race to civil war didn't really feel earned. It felt a little exaggerated. It's like, okay, well, we just need to have a big final fight. Let's try to do something different. But um, but I mean, there are many many strong elements about it. Obviously, uh, you know, and its societal impact and its importance to um, you know black moviegoers, uh, you know, and uh, you know film lovers everywhere. I do not dismiss. But as a film, I rate it a bit lower. Uh, number seventeen, Captain Marvel, which I really like a lot too. Uh, Sixteen, Ant Man and Wasp. I'm, I'm I'm to the point where I love all these films now. By the way, I'm you know it was only the first few were like, oh, they're just kind of good. Uh, number t- uh, fifteen, Captain America, the uh, first Avenger. Number 14, Iron Man. Number 13, Ant-Man. I really like Ant-Man a lot. Uh, Number 12, Iron Man 3. My favorite of the Iron Mans because it's so... That movie was a constant roller coaster of surprises. It didn't do anything by any kind of formula. It was constantly reinventing itself every step of the way, and it has still some of the best action sequences. I think um, Tony rescuing the people falling out of the plane might be my favorite action sequence in all of the MCU. Um... Although him fighting with only three pieces of his overall suit was amazing also. Uh, Number 11, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Number 10, Spider-Man. Homecoming, number 9, The Original Avengers. Number 8, Thor Ragnarok, which I'm sure is Jen's number 1 or number 2. Is that my favorite one? Uh, It's Thor Ragnarok. With, with them being silly? Yes, okay. the silly one. Yep. Uh, number seven, Spider-Man Far From Home. Number six, Age of Ultron, which is another surprise. I think Age of Ultron is fantastic. I don't know why it gets so 
beat up. I, I, I think it's pitch perfect. I think the the, um, the the second act, when they basically spend, what, 20 minutes out on a farm just talking through their problems was amazing. You don't see anything like that anywhere else in the MCU. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, number five, Guardians of the Galaxy. And now this is weird. Number four, Winter Soldier. Number three, Civil War. Number two, Infinity War. And number one, Endgame. So clearly, the Russo brothers um, take the top four slots. Uh, it's just amazing what they've been able to do. They're all fantastic. Uh, Avengers Endgame, uh, I, I'm a bit embarrassed to say it, but I'm not because I'm okay with it, is also my number one movie of all time, quite frankly. Although, I like to think of just the entire MCU as one big movie, when it boils right down to it. One big, what, 50-hour movie. That's pretty cool to me. So, that hopefully answers the question. If you'd like my top 10 movies, and my how I break down Star Trek, and what was the other one? Oh, Star Wars. All of that at letterbox.com slash rotto. Uh, and totally... I did not expect this. I'd just done this on my own, but how fortunate. Because I do get asked this question quite a bit. And so, you came along at just the right time, Kelly. Okay, do you have anything to say, Honey Pie? What is your favorite Marvel movie? Thor Ragnarok, I think. What about the Guardians of the Galaxy? I also like the Guardians of the Galaxy. Which one? Pick one. The one where he's dancing to the music. That would be Guardians of the Galaxy, then. Okay. But Thor Ragnarok has Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, he's just kind of weird, though. <laughs> he's just kind of weird. Okie doke. <clears throat> All right. Um, let's see. We move on to Will Foy, who has a very, 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 wow. very, very, very long novel that he is called an email. Um, and right. So first of all, as always, folks, if you want to read this on um, YouTube, it's all there for you. A lot of it has to do with Tassini and um, Phil Eklund and Fun Again Games, and basically all of the different controversies that have popped up in the board game industry literally over the last four weeks. And, um, right, and, you know, and, and, uh, and basically Will is, you know, where do we draw the line? At what point do we just enjoy the games? You know, separating the artist from the art, all those kinds of questions. He has a very long, well-thought-out treatise. You can definitely read online. Um, and then, and, and honestly, I'm going to skip all of this right now, because again, I'm just going to take everybody's Tessini and associated emails and just cover it as one big thing at the end. So, Will, I'll get back to that, but if people want to see it, uh, it's available on the YouTubes. Alrighty. But then, Will also has a personal question about sports. And I have actually read this already, and it's very long. And again, uh, pause if you're looking on YouTube right now, and then you can see the second half of it right there. Pause and read some more. And th this is like an entire page of text, folks. And then you can move on to the next one. And all right, there's the, there's the third page. So, long story short, uh, I mentioned, I don't remember if you mentioned, that I don't particularly like sports. I just don't get it. I don't see. I appreciate that other people like it, but I don't get it. And Will says, yeah, but sports has so many good things going for it. And I agree with every single thing you said in here, Will. Um, but a lot of Will's point in this section has to do with personal sports. Not sports uh, as a pastime, as, a, uh, as, a as, a, as an obsession, as a spectator sports versus... Getting out what, there what do you call it? What's the difference between spectator and personal sports? I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm exercise. Exercise, yes. <laughs> and all that's true. When I say I don't get why anybody digs sports, I mean sitting down on the couch for four hours and watching a bunch of strangers run from one side of the field to the other. That's what I was referring to. I totally get and understand the, um, the benefit to one's life 
they get the camaraderie of you know communal goals and um, uh, you know and the support they get from their teammates yeah. and you know obviously the exercise the vitamin D from the sun all of those things are undeniable and I wasn't referring to any of that when I said yeah I just don't get sports I don't get wrong I don't want to play personal sports either I never have as a young child. Um, before we moved on the boat and before I became a recluse, I was very tall for my age and I was very much, what would you say, um, peer pressured into engaging in all the sports, into the soccers and the baseballs. And, and, um, and I wasn't particularly crazy about it. I always felt uncomfortable doing it, but I did it and I was okay at it, uh, mostly because I was bigger than the other kids and stronger. But I, I was, it was never something I really wanted to do. And maybe that's just kind of woven into my core DNA a uh, distaste for anything. I just, I just want to stay away from all of this. But yeah, please bear in mind, everything I was talking about was spectator sports. I don't get spectator sports. I do get real-life, physical uh, activity, sports-type stuff. So, um, with that in mind, you then have a whole nother page, <laughs> which again, folks can pause if they want. Um... And uh, you know, he talks about you know the scientific and physical benefits and, and all that stuff. And I think uh, you know the question is, well, what do you think about that? And I think I just answered that question. Yeah, I definitely, as long as you're not pushing anybody into it. Like I was not pushed by my parents, but I was just pushed by my peers, and it was just kind of expected of me. And I really didn't like it. So obviously, that's a real problem with real sports, with personal sports as opposed to spectator sports. That people can get peer pressured into it. I'm living proof of that. It's made me keep sports at arm's length my entire life. But uh, you know, voluntary, just going out and having fun, chasing a ball around a field, watching somebody else chase a ball back and forth who's a total stranger. I don't get that, but I certainly get doing it yourself. I totally get that, and I think it's great. Uh, I think, you, if I recall correctly, you also talk about how historically sports were a way to bring humanity together in lieu of war. You know, obviously, that's the whole point of the Olympics. I think all that is great, too. Uh, you know, there's a lot of benefit to it, and I'm all for it. Okay, but now he has a quicker one. Personal question number two. Knowing that Jen and I are introverts who enjoy each other's company, but knowing also that it probably helps to get out and about from time to time, what activities have we have been especially sanity-saving while we mostly stay at home in order to protect ourselves from pandemic? Anything unusual come to mind? Have you picked up a new hobby or skill or interest that we, the audience, might find interesting? And thank you, etc. And, of course, we kind of talked about this a little bit with the hobbies question. Yeah, actually, something did occur to me about what that. What did occur to you, Honey Pie? Well, occasionally I go on a bit of a bender where I try something out. And just lately, yeah. I decided I wanted to um, check out Heritage Grains. What's... Oh, yes. Uh-huh. So um, I bought some from a, an internet website and um, just started making bread with it to see if that ah. would actually be something that we could tolerate, meaning that maybe our problems with grains are the, the modern ones that mm -hmm. have been, you know, mucked about mm -hmm. with. And so... I would say that's been kind of fun. And I tend to do that anyway with learning, you know, some recipe or going off and doing something. I like to drink. So no. <laughs> I uh, have also bought something called Bruzy, B-R-E-W-S-Y, mm -hmm. just recently. And also one for my parents because I think they would enjoy it. And basically it's, it's yeast and you stick it in juice and it makes alcohol. And so you can make your own stuff. And I thought, oh, that sounds fun because I've tried doing it in the past just using wild yeast and things like that. Uh, so um, I would say that's kind of fun. Okay. Not that you do any of that outside. 
<laughs> so mean? I mean, well, we moved on to uh, hobbyish type stuff to do outside. No, it's said anything in the during the. No, no, he said what you know. Um, it's it's all because this whole thing was about outside and doing sports and stuff like that. Um, oh no, no, you're right, you're right. Okay, I uh, I was reading between the lines. Right, no, but that's why you know get out from time to time. You don't get out to make bread. I don't know. I guess. Right. So anyway, I was uh, follow like up to a the previous question. Break. Follow up to the previous question. Yeah. Jen has been hobbying with yeast. Yeast. Yeast-related activities. <laughs> um, but to Will's specific one, stuff that gets us out of the house from time to time uh, as a sanity-saving measure to get away from being cooped up. And we don't need that as a sanity... You know, I don't know. I don't at all. Do you find being cooped up to be problematic? Um, I think because my studio is out of the house, that helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, a, you know, out, out, it's in our garden, but it's out, outside the house. Yeah. Um... I also walk the dogs a couple times a day, yeah. and that's getting out. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I've needed anything, anything beyond particular. That. No. Yeah. I mean, I've I've felt really recently uh, that I would like to start getting out in in the state of Washington and seeing more of these places that I have never been mm -hmm. while we're here. Like when your sister and her kids were there, and you went up to St. Helens. Mount St. Helens. Yeah. I mean, I'd been to Mount St. Helens, but not in twenty years. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's just so many beautiful places, and we just tend to stay here and walk in the same places we've always walked. Yep. So I would like to, I think that's something this year, especially as we get vaccinated, hmm. we can go out and have day hikes, you know, or go drive somewhere that has a nice hike for an hour or two. Well, you know what could drive that? Geocaching. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Woo. Yep. Okay. Sounds okay. good. All right. Thank you, Will. Um, sorry I didn't go deeper. I mean, again, I've actually, I read this whole thing, um, so I could be prepared to answer because there was just no, I mean, folks, you have no idea. Will wrote a lot <laughs> and I really appreciate the thought and time you put into it. I did actually read it and, and largely I just agree. <laughs> um, and I, I, effectively I misspoke last month. Okay. Joe says, Hey, Rado, uh, you probably got this from others. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, no. That was a follow-up. Oh, no, this was... So, I forget. It was last month or the month before. Somebody asked a question about the Great Reset and what our thoughts were about various things. And Joe... It must have been Joe, because Joe said, Hey, I just want to be clear. Um, clear opinion information. Uh, there is no... Or so, for people who remember the question from a month or two ago about the Great Reset, there is no proposal related to the Great Reset that has anything to do with the seizure and redistribution of property. It's an entirely capitalistic proposal that emphasizes sustainability and the economy that uh, serves all citizens. The question you received was full of ideas springing from conspiracy theories that were concocted shortly before the reset was publicly proposed. And I think I do remember this, Joe, because after I'm done, I do read, and I think I went and I looked into this up a little bit, and I'm like, oh my gosh, is Joe a monster? Because he was asking all these really kind of crazy conspiratorial, like, um, big brothery type things. And I'm like, ooh, okay. Well, I don't agree with any of those. And Joe's just stepping up and saying, I don't agree with them either. I was just seeing what Rado thought about all of this kind of stuff. Well, I didn't agree with it. And I still don't agree with it. Um, and I do... Uh, I don't know that a, a, something as, a, as extreme as what Prince Charles and others were proposing is necessary. I think we're going to get there in a much more organic way. But I do appreciate the thinking. Okay. Uh, do, 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 do. Hey, there's going to be a dog pick in this one, honey pie. Uh, Martin Warren's up front. Okay. <laughs> Let's see here. And the question is, when someone is getting a dog, 
Do you recommend adopting from a shelter or buying from a private seller? I got my cocker from a private seller for a song because I couldn't find anybody to adopt her. I've sent you a picture of Zoe before, but here's another one. It's Zoe who's asleep, oh. a sleepy pup. <laughs> Which again, folks, you can see at dogs at ro or dogs.rado.com. Um, so, honey pie, the question. Uh, uh, yeah. Shelter or private seller? My feeling is um, shelters. Mm-hmm. Because these dogs are here. Yep. And if you buy from a private breeder, they're just going to be encouraged to breed some more. Yes. Whereas shelter dogs, you know, if you can save the life of that dog and you create a spot for another dog to come in and have their life saved as well. Yes. So... That is passing it forward. Now, of course... Paying it forward. I'm paying it forward. Uh, I mean, is there any issue? Would, if I were to play the... I don't know. I mean, aren't shelter dogs problematic? And, you know, and I don't really have... <coughs> I, I need a well-adjusted dog. And, you know, I mean, what about that? Um, I think quite often that problem dogs have problem owners. Mm -hmm. And so if a dog is given up at a shelter because the owner can't handle it, it's most likely because they have not put in the time and effort to train the dog or they have their these fears or whatever it is that is actually impacted on the dog. And once the dog gets a new owner, it then responds to its new situation. Yeah. Now I think dogs um, that have been trained to fight possibly are the exception to that rule. I don't, I don't think that they can't be trained away from that, but I, I'm not sure because actually I have no personal uh, experience with fighting dogs. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my caveat with that. And it would need more research. Your point is dogs live in the now. Dogs live in the now. As a general rule, they don't process trauma quite the same way we do. They, given the opportunity, will move on. And I mean, there are so many videos right now on, um, what's that thing on Facebook that's always showing dogs getting rehabilitated? I don't know. Um, okay. Well, it'll come up. It'll come back to me in my mind. Um, it's, it's a videos. Okay. Is it the wolf or something like that? No, or? no. Okay, I'll look it up. But anyway, basically, you see all of these videos, if you're into dogs, on YouTube, and it's showing dogs that get pulled off of the street who have been living on the street or whatever, and all they want is love and a home. That's all they want. Whether they've been abused in the past, whether, you know, starved, whatever it is, they get some care, they get re rehabilitated, they become healthy, and they're happy waggy, smiley, happy dogs. Yeah. Um, our dog, Daisy, was a street dog. Uh, she was yeah. abandoned um, on the streets of Sicily and taken in by a, uh, what would you call it? Not or an organization, I guess. Basically, a woman who basically rehomes dogs. Yeah. She's, uh, just she's not even home. an organization. She just said, okay, I'm going to save all these dogs. I'm going to take them to my home and I'm going to find new homes for them. Yep. And so, so Daisy had a rough life. Um, and the, we know that because... One of the first things we found out about her is when we're out walking, hey, let's see if she'll uh, chase a stick. And every time you pick up a stick around her, she immediately cowers because she's afraid she's going to be beaten. Yep. And we've had her now for several years, and she'll still do that. And that's a self-defense mechanism. But, so I, I mentioned that, not to say, oh my gosh, look, we have a broken dog and it's really problematic. No, Daisy is a dream. She's wonderful. And, and it's clear from that behavior that she came from a really bad circumstance, but being, uh, but put into a good circumstance thrived. Yeah. And I think that's the case. So, um, it, it's, it's a great, great thing to rescue a dog. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And as Jen said, make room for another dog who could potentially be rescued afterwards. 
That's a good way to put that too. Yep. And also you don't want to encourage a behavior. Um, that Basically giving somebody money is encouraging that behavior. Yeah. So if you're buying from a private seller, they have absolutely no reason not to breed their dogs again and create more of an overpopulation problem. Mm -hmm. Yep. Although you did get, that's how you got Zoe and Zoe looks awesome. So, uh, right, and actually, we bought our first dog, Scuttle. Mm -hmm. We got her from an well, we ad get in the paper. From, yeah, but that was from literally somebody. Oh, my dog got pregnant. Dang, what am I going to do with these puppies? That oh, was not a an actual breeder true. situation. I mean, and that was back in 1992. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time ago. But um, we bought Dobby from yes, a breeder. Yes, we did breeder. get Dobby from a breeder, and I mean, she and was the I best dog ever. But yeah, but I'm sure that that person was a for-profit breeder. Uh, yeah, no choice about it. And we definitely. never saw her parents or anything like that. We saw them... Um, Austin, Texas has this thing called Puppy Mania, mm -hmm. where breeders... Well, they did, whatever, 15 years ago they did. Yeah. Who knows if they have it now? I don't know. But but basically, there was this corner on a couple of highways, and people would bring their dogs and set up playpens with all of their puppies. And people knew about this, and they would come and buy puppies from people there. So it was the worst situation, because... You didn't know really who you were buying from. You didn't know if the parents were healthy or anything. It was it was just awful. And if I'd known back then what I know now, mm -hmm. I'm sure we it. would never have gone there. But, yeah. oh, I did fall in love with Dobby. And, <laughs> and we paid, I think we paid $300 for Dobby, yep. which was crazy money at the time. And I thought, what in the world? But when you fall in love, you fall in love. <laughs> And maybe that's happened with you and Zoe, too. And yeah. she is lovely. But since then, all of our dogs have been rescues. Yeah. Cool. All righty. Uh, next, we move on to Melanie, uh, whose dog died last year, or last oh. month, remember? Yes. Uh, very sadly. Who uh, thought she was going to have to wait until mid-June to get a new puppy um, when the breeder's uh, upcoming litter is ready to go. However, her sister is also a breeder of Yorkies, too, and she had puppies and was almost ready to go. We thought waiting until mid-June was too far long for Yuki, who was lonely. Here's a photo. Honey, you are not ready for this photo. No, no, I've seen this Yorkie photo. puppy. Here's a photo of my teenage son holding our puppy at seven weeks. Folks, this picture, you will melt your heart. It'll be on dogs.com. Not quite two pounds yet. Six weeks until we get him. Oh, okay, you haven't gotten him yet. Uh, we got to pick him out of two puppies. It was a very hard decision. Um, and here's the picture, honey, bye. Oh, very cute. Can you believe that? Yes. Can you dig it? I can totally dig. That is exceptionally, oh, almost very... obscenely cute, yeah. quite frankly. <laughs> that is the sweetest little pup. But anyway, Melanie has a similar question. How do we decide to get our dogs? I know some lady had dogs available. You were able to get your dog uh, before you were considering certain breeds, or were you really open to any kind of dog any size? Why did you go with a breeder? Uh, instead of rescuing a dog um, from the pound. Well, of course, obviously, we mm. talked about that a bit. Yeah. Uh, it was our younger days. We wouldn't go to a breeder now. Well, but, yes, we wouldn't, and we wouldn't go to, like, Puppy Mania and just buy from people, <sighs> like, who are just backyard breeders or professional. But um, the way we got Tula and Gert is that there's a place in England called Beagle Rescue, or Beagle Welfare. And so beagles tend to be given up about a year and a half because... At that point, people are like, ah, not this cute puppy. They're yeah. stubborn. And beagles kind of have a teenage period until they're about three years old. So a lot of them do get um, given up at about a year and a half. So anyway, we had decided we had Dobby and Dobby was getting on and we thought we would like to have another beagle. So we got on with Beagle Welfare and, you know, went through all of their questionnaires and all that kind of stuff. 
and they said, we think we've got a good match for you. And it just so happened that Tula was a breeding bitch from people who are at the Crufts level of breeders. So high, high, like Win Westminster in the States. Crufts is like Westminster in Not Britain. a puppy mill type situation. No. Yeah. Working for the betterment of the breed. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, Tula um, was available. She was five years old and they were retiring her from the breeding program and they needed to find a new home for her because they obviously have um, their other breeding dogs. And so we were like, yeah, that sounds great. We'll take her because she's otherwise, you know, she's surplus to requirements, as they say in England. And she was just a lovely, lovely dog. In fact, the the husband of the husband and wife partnership that does this breeding, I think she was his favorite dog. And he <laughs> did not want her to go. Mm -hmm. So there was tears. Uh, so that's how we got Tula. And then when Tula passed on, we let them know since because you know, she had cancer, we thought that we should let them know in case that needed to be known for the bloodlines and all that. And they had had a cousin of Tula who was returned to them because they'd sold her as a show dog. And uh, Gert does not have the personality of a show dog. She's got the looks for it. Oh, she's beautiful. Yeah. But she does not have the confidence and the interest of being in the show ring and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, the people had brought her back at about a year and a half, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, back to the breeder. And so, yeah, they just said, hey, we've got, you know, this cousin of Tallulah. She looks quite a lot like Tallulah. And would you like to meet her? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. And basically, um, done. <laughs> <laughs> done. There was never really much of a question. So, yeah, that's how we got Gert. So, and, and both, all you know, both of them spayed. So there was definitely an expectation that we were not going to be using their dogs to backyard breed ourselves. And of course not. Mm. Um, oh, so, that was a requirement? I didn't know that. Yep. Mm. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, I already told you Dobby. And Daisy, as, as you know, she, we just said she was a stray. So. <laughs> and interestingly, she's half beagle. We're not quite sure what the other half is. Uh, probably a PBGB, <laughs> Petite Griffon. Petite? Bassett Griffon Vendine. So she's probably half that, half Beagle. Just because of the way that's a coincidence. Yeah. We were just looking for another dog. Um, but, I mean, that's three Beagle, that's three and a half Beagles in a row. And one of Melanie's questions was uh, considering certain breeds, were we open to any kind of dog of any size? Well, we have been looking or thinking about dogs, you know, next, our next group, our next couple of dogs. And they will be smaller dogs, I think. I love Beagles and I love their personalities. Uh, I, I really like pretty much everything about them, but they do not fit under a, a airline seat. Mm -hmm. So I think our next dogs will be mutts of some sort that we will get from the pound. Hopefully, I think what we want to do is get puppies from the pound, get two sisters. Uh, that'll be small dogs in the 10 pound range at most and that can travel with us. I don't know that you can be quite so specific in your request from the pound, can you? I mean... Well, I think that they will know, because they'll have the mom, and they'll have the puppies, mm -hmm. and they can see... Although Daisy is about 20 pounds, and her puppies that came out of her are German shorthair pointer size. So that's 35, 40-pound mm -hmm. dogs, yep. maybe 50 pounds. Um, so uh, can you imagine poor little Daisy birthing these guys? <laughs> yeah. So I guess it's possible for a big dog to impregnate a small dog, but hopefully that will work out.
Okay. And if it doesn't, we'll just have to sort out plain <laughs> accommodation somehow. All right. Well, okay. Uh, thanks for the picture, Melanie. It is awesome, and I'm glad to hear that Yuki will have a new best friend very soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, and one more look at the picture. Oh, so that is, cute. That is crazy. I do love Yorkies. We've talked about Yorkies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A, a Yorkie mix would be lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Then we go on to uh, Gerald, who... Uh, right. Oh, he has, a, he has kind of a silly question. Um, right, which was, how many questions is too many for one uh, person to ask? Is two per category? Six in total? Too much? I think he's just being silly, though. <laughs> he does have a real question, though, um, which is, on a recent episode, I spoke about the golden rule. We're back to golden and platinum, honey pie. Oh. But there's an interesting twist. What about the golden rule versus the Star Trek rule, which uh, uh, also the ancient rule of rulers, do it for the greater good? Or, come on, you know how to say it right, Gerald. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Come on, man. Uh, throughout known ancient history and public uh, information modern history, governments have murdered more people than recorded serial killers. Probably just one single government has killed more. In almost all cases, uh, with every race, they've used it to do it for the greater good as people in power declare what the good is and what the action or sacrifice required. Even the good guys of World War II murdered children going to school for the greater good. They dropped radioactive atomic bombs on them. The celebrated heroes of World War II did that. Uh, have you ever thought about this when it comes to the actual ancient Star Trek rule? And uh, which do you think is better? And which do you think is more persuasive to motivate people? And as he said, that is a heavy question. He labeled it heavy. It is very heavy. Uh, I do, of course, agree with goods, uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. I do believe, like anything, it can be perverted and misused. Um, you know, talking specifically uh, about America, the only country in history that has actually um, used atomic weapons is, uh, in war. Um, I understand the arguments in favor of it, that ultimately more lives were saved than lost because the Japanese uh, military was basically on a suicide mission and they were starving their people to keep the fight going even though it was lost and they needed to have something to shake themselves out of their mania. And I've, I've heard all of that. Um, but still, I mean, come on, man. Did it have to be two major cities? Yes, I know leaflets were dropped in the weeks leading up. Warning people, get out of the city. This city is going to be targeted. But those leaflets didn't say, oh, by the way, it's going to be targeted with a science fiction weapon that um, will do something like, I mean, I, I, it's at best, I mean, people say, oh, get out, there's going to be bombs. Okay, well, you know what bombs are. We can handle bombs. There was no true warning. And I do, I, I think that is a stain on history, and I think it could have been done better. I think, um, you know what? Hey, that first bomb, you could have dropped it on an unoccupied area and let everybody see. I mean, I'd, I'd rather you not drop the bomb at all. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate there were ex exceptional, extenuating circumstances um, that, you know, the, the brightest minds of the time felt it was absolutely necessary to stop Japan from killing itself, basically, because they were going to run their people into the ground and never stop fighting. And in fact, the military, as I understand it, never did stop. It was after the second bomb was dropped that the emperor himself stepped forward and said, uh, yeah, I've been mostly ceremonial, but this is over. We're stopping this now. Or, or things like that. I think that's, I, I, I don't know, I saw a documentary about this years ago. I think it was something like that. I, I might have elements of it wrong. 
I do still wish they'd found a better way to do that. They had cameras. They um, could have made public what they were about to... They could have said, hey, look, here's what we're doing. We're going to drop this on uh, Nagasaki or Hiroshima next week. Everybody out now or surrender now. They didn't. They uh, needed the element of surprise for maximum effect. Um, and I don't think dropping Leafwood saying, hey, by the way, we're going to drop some bombs on you next week was good enough. Or what, you know, whatever the particulars of the Leafwoods were. So, yeah, that's a, that's a stain. Oh, by the way, honey, you're, uh, not that it matters, but your yarn is leaking onto the, oh. the email. Oh, no! It's green yarn. Here, here's some yarn. There you go. There's some more yarn for <laughs> anybody watching on YouTube. Jen's, uh, this Jen is This is all the yarn I've got left. Yep, she's getting close to the end. Okay. Um, sorry for people listening to the podcast, <laughs> which is the way it's supposed to be, because this is a podcast. Um, so, yeah, I guess the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one is, I think, ultimately the best edict. But, you know what? The golden rule can be uh, subverted and twisted and used for ill as well. Anything can. And so I guess that's kind of where I come down on it. What do you think, Honey Pie? Uh, I agree with everything you said. Okay. I mean, I, what else is there to say? All right. Well, I, I think that was answering your question. If not, I'm sure you'll be back, Gerald. All righty. <laughs> Uh, next up, we have... Oh, uh, this was Steven. Okay. Steven... Didn't he have six questions? Huh? He said he had six questions. Oh, no, he was kind of joking around. Oh, that. okay. All right, so... Steven is a doctor in training, a resident in the U.S., and he knows we've talked before about how much we love the healthcare system in Europe versus the U.S. Could we talk a bit more about some of the experiences as a patient we've had uh, comparing the systems, U.S. versus Europe? Fully recognizing that the U.S. system, healthcare system could be different, better in many ways, and you have the perspective of someone who has lived and received healthcare in both systems, three systems, in fact, because we've been U.K. and Malta and the U.S. Uh, I just wanted to pick your brains about it. What is something as a person who has been a patient in both of these systems that you would want U.S. doctors to know because Stephen is a doctor. Wow. Okay. Well, one thing that I find amazing about England, and I'm not sure if it's Europe as well, but I would imagine it probably is, mm -hmm. is... Well, you can contrast compared to Malta. Well, we have I'm just going to start with this. Okay. So, um, people in England, doctors, television shows, the Joe on the street. Everybody treats bodies like they're everybody's got one. It's not like um, in the states where uh, oh, there, there's so much taboo stuff mm -hmm. in the states. I think it might be part of our puritanical um, hereditary yep, stuff. Yep, yep. Yeah, but so there's a show called Healthy Bodies. What's, what I don't remember. Um, it's a very popular show. Let me see if I can find it. Um, yeah, it's... Um, Google is searching. UK show about medical bodies. oddities with nudity. Let's see if that'll do it. Um, 15 British TV shows that have a shocking amount of nudity in them. It'll probably be one of those. Uh, embarrassing bodies. Embarrassing bodies. Yes. Oh, better careful because you you're showing this on... Well, no, this is... This is I, I did a Google search. Okay. Oh, oh no, yes. Um, yeah, no, it's, that's a safe picture. Uh, but it's, it's, it's on the borderline, I suppose, for an American audience. Exactly. But a European audience wouldn't think twice about there being anything wrong. No, but this is the thing. They actually have a big bus or an RV that's been converted over into a 
kind of a clinic and it goes around the UK and people will come even though they've got the national health system people will come and they will talk to this television show where they're on TV they're being filmed and they will show their weird let me show you my anus because there seems to be a weird growth on it can yep. you tell me what it is and no warning no nope. blurring out nope. hey there's the anus on national television or penis or vagina or breasts or wherever I mean it's all and it's just because people have bodies. Hey, it's so healthy and it's so normal. And it it begs saying, why are we so... Prudish. Yeah. Everybody has this stuff. You know, it's all, it's all skin. So anyway, I thought And it was that... very shocking for us to see that show too. I mean, as new Americans and we're like, hey, what, what's on TV here? <laughs> oh. Whoa. Okay. That guy just showed us his, yeah. his thing. So... Anyway, um, I thought that was definitely worth mentioning. It would be nice if everybody just felt like, yeah, these are... And there isn't any shame in the UK about if you've got something that needs sorting out. Whereas a lot of times in the, in the US, uh, there is. So, well, I can't go talk to a doctor about that. That's my private part. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was stunning. Um, and I would say as a recipient of the medical care there as well, that... It's just not a big deal. Um, women, you know what we do once a year when we go get our pap smears, right? We There's a whole production about it, and there's draping, and there's curtains, and there's, you know, a certain position that you're in and everything. Well, in the UK, that doesn't happen. They just have you hop up on the little bench thing and um, create the, a visual space where they can look at what they need to look at. And it's just no big deal at all. It's all done and just a couple of minutes and they're talking to you and it's just it's just so not an issue that it's incredible i think i've probably told you about that after one of my no female no. Um, appointments but yeah you're just like and it and it's so freeing as the patient that it's not taboo and it's not dirty and it's not shameful and it's not anything it's you know it's just hey this is the spacesuit that I live in and it needs some maintenance, you know? So I think that was absolutely incredible. And I found that that was the same case in Malta. Mm -hmm. um, the Maltese doctors were just, yep, hop up. Let's see what you got. Mm -hmm. Show <laughs> so, me what you got. Yep. Tell me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that, that to me is a, a marked difference. Okay. There was also... But now that's societal. That's not anything to do specifically with the healthcare system. But anyway, I'm sorry, you're about to go on. There's also something else. Um, well, I think it does lead in to the okay. fact that everybody's got a body and it needs maintenance. And so it's just normal to go to your doctor and get help. So like here, I've been back and, oh, it's just it's such a hassle. The U.S. medical system is such a hassle. I just... I just want to go to the doctor when I need to go to the doctor. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be a big production, but here it does. You've got to make sure you're authorized and that it's been, it's going to be covered by your insurance. And, and what's your copay? Oh, and yes. It's, and just, just, it's just, a, just a Byzantine nightmare of awfulness. It yes. just makes, makes one predisposed to say, Never mind. I'll just live with it. Yeah, whatever. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, when I, I took a tumble earlier this year and almost broke my ankle. We just, you know what? Let's just see if it heals. Yeah. yeah. We would not have done that. We would have been to the hospital in an instant 
in England or Malta because I did a serious amount of damage. Um, and I couldn't walk regularly for months and months and months. But here, it's like, well, probably just better to kind of wince through the pain. Uh, let's go on Amazon and buy and see if we can find a nice leg brace. Yeah, and let's, brace. let's do our own self. And, and you know, and that's that's the reality of life in America. Unless you've got a great job with a great health care plan. Yep. And Which we're paying fair. for health insurance right yeah. now, so it's not like we didn't have health insurance. We are paying for health insurance solely in case we get in an auto accident. Yeah, because the health insurance we have, we have to pay up to the what is it, seven thousand dollars a person before anything kicks in. Yeah. And so that's all of our deductible. Yeah. So whatever we decide, we any any doctor stuff, we have to pay up to the seven thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Before the insurance actually kicks yeah. in. And that's... And we're paying a premium. Yeah. We're paying them money for that every month. Yep, yeah, we're a, a huge premium every month just to have that. And we only have it in case we have some kind of catastrophic thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just ridiculous. And it it changes the way you think about your health care. Yep. Um, and, you, know, it, 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 you, know, you know, this consumer mentality where, oh, well, we should bargain. And we should comparison shop because that will get us the best results. That's true for buying a car, but that's not true for, what would you say, spacesuit maintenance, <laughs> yeah. um, which I love. That's great. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, as a doctor, I think that's something that might be easy for you to forget or to not appreciate because chances are you'll have really good health care. And you'll be in a situation that, to be fair, Jen and I were in most of our adult lives living in it. I, I worked yeah. in the video game industry, and we had amazing health care. Yep. We, and at that time, we wouldn't think twice about anything going in and taking care of it because, hey, it was just taken care of. And when we got to England, it's like, well, this really isn't any different. This is what we've always had. Um, and, uh, you know, we just didn't appreciate we had it. A, we had employer-sponsored health care. Yeah. With your jobs. Yes. Yep. And then we had state-sponsored healthcare with living in England and Malta. Yeah. And there were differences, to be sure. Uh, I would certainly say the biggest one, both in England and Malta, there was a little bit... I mean, I had had food poisoning once in America, and we called the... We called... Not the 911, but we called whoever we were supposed to call that wasn't an emergency. And they said, yeah, you should probably come in, get some fluids. Um, and we did, and I spent the night, and it was no big deal, and it was all covered by insurance. We didn't think twice about it. Cut to England a few years later. I got food poisoning again. What am I eating? I don't know. <laughs> but we called and they said, eh, you're probably going to be okay. You know, they weren't quite as anxious to rush us in because, of course, in America, yes, by all means, come in. You They're spending a night paid. is going to make us a lot of money for our hospital, for you just staying the night and getting some fluids, uh, you know, and get um, and, and, and having your, your vitals checked. Whereas in England, they're like, do we really, I mean, um, you know, they, they have a completely different incentive structure on, you know, on the medical side. So they, you know, that happened. Um, and at the same time, though, if you'd wanted to, we could have gone to the doctor that day. Yeah. NBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, it's not like they would turn us away and it's not like we would have paid. There's just, I, I think there's maybe a little bit of a different, um, you know, it's it's very much a societal British stiff upper lipness to things. You know, hey, we survived the Blitz. Stiff off a relief. Mustn't <laughs> grumble. All those yeah. common British sayings. So, I mean, that was surprising that that happened. And for a long time, I looked at that as, a, oh, well, look, that's the American healthcare system in action. But as Jen said, they would have seen me. Yep. And they would have had me stay overnight. And they would have, if I had just gone on ahead and showed up in the emergency room saying, oh, my gosh, it's coming out of every orifice and it's not stopping. Help <laughs> me, doc. They would have helped. Yep. Um, they would have given you some yeah. anti-diarrheals or something I think like maybe that. the attitude was, well, look, it, you know, if he has the presence of mind to actually call to ask, it's probably not that bad. Mm. And you know, and reality is, it probably wasn't that bad. I mean, although it seemed like I was dying at the time when we were in America, but 
Yeah, in America, oh, you have insurance? Yes, please come in. We'll run every test on you we can. Yep. Uh, would you like to stay longer? So <laughs> we can uh, get even more from the insurance company. Um, and how does the insurance company do that? By making us cover the first $7,000 of ours. Yay! Mm. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible system. And I guess all I can say is try to be understanding. Because if somebody does see you, they probably look at the entire endeavor. Depending on what their situation is, they might look at the entire endeavor in an entirely different way. They come to see you thinking, oh my God, this is literally going to bankrupt us. Yep. This will ruin us. We will not be able to send our kids to college because we're seeing this guy. So please just try to remember that. Because for a lot of people, that's true. And it's a broken, horrible system. It is just the worst of the worst. And honestly, it's one of the main reasons we cannot wait to get out of this country. Uh, um, uh, at least, unless we finally do the right thing. Uh, not that Medicare for All is a perfect panacea either, but it's a step in the right direction. But preventative care and catching things when they're not horrific is so much cheaper than doing trauma care. Mm -hmm. So I think actually, I think it's so much, yeah, I think that the UK has the right idea. Yep. Okie doke. And then um, Steve's other question was, where do I find most of the t-shirts I've been wearing um, in videos? Links? Almost all of them were just on Amazon, which I know is problematic to buy from, but still, it's just so freaking convenient. Uh, the only ones that weren't were the Black Lives Matter shirts because I bought them direct so that my money would actually go towards the organizations. But um, it's just too convenient not to be able to say, oh, look, that's a nice shirt, and if it doesn't fit, I know I can return it. No questions asked. Amazon, it's hard to complain about a monopoly, when their monopolistic tendencies lead to such great customer service. Uh, but, again, I know they're a problematic organization as well. Anyway, so that was it, Honey Pie. I think we are done, except for your words of wisdom and the uh, big one. So, folks, like I said, uh, a few, there are a few Tassini and other things coming up. There's many, many more. Uh, now is the part where I basically give you my take on what happened with Danielle Tassini. For people who don't know, here is what happened. Danielle Tassini is one of the most popular, well-respected designers in the board game industry. Zolk and the Mayan Calendar, Grand Austria Hotel. I mean, heck, some of the games I was talking about earlier in this podcast. Uh, we have loved all of his games. They haven't all necessarily been keepers, but we thought they were all amazing. And pretty much everybody agrees. Amazing designer, incredible pedigree. Recently, at some point in the past, he did an interview with somebody. Um, and I don't know where it is. I don't think you can find it anymore. But recently, somebody took a portion, a snippet of uh, part of the Q&A or the question and answer he was doing and sent it to several different board game channels, hoping that one of them would um, signal boost it. And um, the, what was actually said was it was... Ironically, Danielle Tassini trying to make a very strong um, anti-racism stance. And now, I, first of all, before I go any farther, please understand, what he said was problematic. I agree with none of it personally. It, there were two things in his statement. And basically, there is this push in the Dungeons & Dragons community for inclusivity to recognize that, hey, you know what? Orcs um, are traditionally represented as evil um, you know, um, ir you know, uh, you know, ir uh, um, you know, um, irredeemable monsters, and they're always shown black-skinned, or without effect. And there's been a push saying, "Hey, you know what? That's a little problematic. That kind of makes us uncomfortable. That oh, you know, the black-skinned race is always pure, um, you know, unfiltered evil. And you know, maybe we could revisit that." 
just because that's what Tolkien said, uh, when he, and you know, and, and that's the way it was written. And, and of course, Tolkien had certain issues, and you know, there's there is context. I'm not going down that route, but maybe we don't have to do that anymore. And so that's been a big push going on for a few years now. And Wizards of the Coast have said, yes, we're going to reevaluate this, and we're going to try to be more positive, and inclusive, and maybe try to get rid of some of these tropes. So anyway, somebody asked Tassini about this and how he felt about it, and his response was, "It's a little silly because." Um, and here's the problem. He was one step removed from a, you know what, I don't even see color kind of a thing. Because his argument was, and it's hard to say what his argument is, because we were reading um, the original Italian, and uh, it's even in the original Italian, I've had several people look at it and they say, it's really kind of scatterbrained all over the place. Like, you almost wonder if the entire quote was even there, because there's like, he kind of shifts tenses and mid-sentences and a lot of weird stuff. But anyway, regardless of all that, could just be because he was talking and the transcription didn't do justice. But regardless... His attitude was that, you know, look, um, black people and orcs are not the same thing. Uh, and uh, words to the effect of, you know, black people aren't really even black. You know, at best they have brown skin. And I, I think this is uh, blown out of proportion. Now, for the record, I disagree with that. Uh, but I don't think that was a, uh, a toxic statement he was making. I believe that was... A, an ignorant statement he was making from somebody who really hadn't thought about it very much and was just going with kind of his gut reaction. And I don't think it actually speaks to him as a person necessarily. But anyway, he said that, and then he tried to reinforce how meaningless, um, you know, black skin is and why it shouldn't be something that is... See, okay, he was trying to have an anti-racist message. Um, we shouldn't judge anybody by the color of their skin um, because color of skin has absolutely nothing to do with intent. That's the underlying message, but he said it in a less than ideal way. But then he tried to reinforce it by saying by talking about context of language. And the example he used is, for instance, I have black friends, and amongst them, I don't give a second thought to referring to them as negri, um, which is Italian plural of negro. So what he said is words to the effect of, you know what, when I'm hanging out with my black friends, um, nobody has a problem with me saying, hey, my negro, um, is effectively the, but here's the problem. That's the sentence. If you put that sentence through Google Translate, Negri will get translated into the N-word. And um, so, what, uh, no pun included, posted, and what everybody immediately jumped to assume the absolute worst of him, that he is a super scumbag, is, oh, when he hangs around his friends, he casually calls them the N-word. Because that's how Google Translate translates it. And now, to be fair, there were plenty of people who are native Italian speakers who, who came forward and said, you know what? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's just as bad. He might as well have said that. And, um, and that's, okay, that's enough. A, a few Italians have said that, yep, he's basically calling his black friends the N-word. He's irredeemable. He needs to be shut down. And there was a huge outcry. He did apologize. I'll come back to the apology in a second. But the next day, his publishers, his big publishers said, we are not going to work with him anymore. And so literally, his career could potentially be ruined. Uh, at least at that point, the story continues. Um, so anyway... Um, Here's, here's, uh, here's what I did when I heard about this. Um, beca uh, because there's one thing I already knew about Daniel Tessie. I've never met him. I've only spoken to him briefly because I gave feedback on a game once and he contacted me on Facebook and said, oh my gosh, you're right. That would have been much better. What you suggested for Tale with Khan, I wish I'd done it that way. That would have been better. I always thought to my mind, oh, that's a big thing for him to say. That's the sign of somebody who's fairly open-minded and willing to uh, accept other ideas. Because I basically 
trashed his baby a little bit, and he agreed. And so that's what I think of him going in. And so I look at this, and uh, the first thing I do is, well, I'm lucky. I lived in Malta for almost a decade, and I know a lot of native Italian speakers. And so I talked to five or six from all walks of life. Game developers, a lawyer, a uh, pharmacist, um, men and women of all ages. And every single one of them agreed when they saw the quote. It's like, well, yeah, what he said was like a little kind of, you know, uh, problematic grandpa-style talk. But he's clearly not a racist. It's clear, you know, he clearly didn't call his friends the N-word. Because here's the thing. Um, for anybody who says uh, Negri, which again is plural Italian for Negro, is as bad as the N-word, here's the thing. I worked with people when I lived in Malta whose last name was Negri. And that in and of itself right there is incontrovertible proof that they are not one-to-one -one the same. Because nobody works, has co-workers whose last name is the N-word. If you're an English native English speaker and your last name is the N-word, you better believe you your family changed that name long ago. But societally, Negri is still a fairly benign. And then I did a lot of research on this. I read um, academic articles about um, movie translations. How, um, how, you know, basically taking Samuel L. Jackson movies, where he tends to say the N-word a lot, in a lot of different formats, and it was uh, studies about how to translate that specifically into Italian. And the interesting thing is, whenever uh, Samuel L. Jackson uses the N-word in a movie in a familiar way, or a camaraderie way, um, it's uh, literally uh, used as negri. But, whenever it was used in a, an aggressive or um, racist way, uh, it didn't get translated. It, it, re it required additional because the word didn't have the same power. Like, there was one example about how, oh, it had to call them Puerto Ricans. That calling somebody a dirty Puerto Rican was actually harsher in the Italian language than calling them uh, Negri. And so, I looked at this situation. I, I had a lot of friends who are native speakers. I did a lot of research. Um, I personally know people who have that name. And I personally am convinced that while he, what he said is problematic. Because honestly, what he did was the equivalent of hanging around with some female friends he has and said, what's up, bitches? And now here's the thing. Sorry for cursing on the, on the channel. That is totally not cool. Um, and it's certainly uncool to do it in popular and just refer to women as bitches. Jen said bitches earlier, so I can say bitches. Of course, you're referring to breeding bitches, but still. Um, and here's the deal. When you are alone amongst your friends, and you feel safe, and they feel safe with you, and there's a comfort, and there's a camaraderie, there is a... Uh, it's human nature uh, to to be a little bit more comfortable with something that's taboo. Something that has a little bit more zest. Something that has more punch. But in a safe space is something that you would not necessarily say in public and you would rightly be decried, but your friends don't have a problem with it. Um, you know, women calling each other sluts as an example, uh, is, is another one where, oh my gosh, you can't say that, but okay, we're just amongst friends, it's all fine here. That's what he was doing. It's definitely not cool. Definitely not cool.
Um, and it's certainly something that I believe he was completely unaware of. And the interesting thing is, his black friends actually went on social media and repeatedly said, this is our friend, he is not a racist, you're getting it all wrong, and that was completely ignored. Anything about the real origin and the societal impact of that word, completely ignored. The fact that there are thousands of people walking around every day, whose last name is that word? Completely ignored. Instead, a Google translation and a few um, people saying, no, it's literally as bad as the N-word, is all that was used to literally crush somebody's um, career. And I believe, based on everything I researched, he was falsely accused. He did something bad. And I come back to telling the story about how he responded when I uh, gave some negative feedback on his game. Here's what I believe about him. Um, you could approach him and say, oh man, Daniele, that's totally not cool. And let me tell you why. And he would probably say, you know what, you're right. That's not. I didn't give it a second thought, and I'm sorry about that, and I'm going to do better. And I guarantee you, I'll tell you why I guarantee you, that's all it needed, and um, this could have been handled in a completely different way, rather than trying to literally destroy him. Um, there's another interesting thing. When I was doing all this research and I was reading other interviews with him, um, one of them I came across was, and this was years ago, that he said his biggest, uh, what do you call it, his biggest regret in game development uh, at that point in his career had been that on Zulk and the Mayan calendar, he screwed up and got, I believe, Aztec and Mayan gods kind of intermingled. And so he messed that up. He uh, was definitely guilty of cultural misappropriation. Um, and without anybody pressuring him, without any social stigma applied to him, he stepped up and said, I was wrong, and I'm going to redouble my efforts for every game I do from now on to do my proper research and treat the subject matter um, respectfully and carefully. And he always has since then. So that plus the interaction I had with him where he said, yeah, I, the game would have been better if I'd done it that way, proves to me that he is an open-hearted and open-minded individual. That's where I sit on Danielle Tassini. Now, let's continue on. As I said, almost immediately, he issued an apology. And I am shocked that everybody was down on that apology because I thought it was pretty gosh darn good. Let me see if I can find it. Facebook, uh, Danielle Tassini. There we go. I'm going to find that apology. Everybody said it was a terrible apology that smacked of, well, I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry, you're wrong. Anybody who says that. I actually saw long threads dissecting every line of his apology. And the people who said it's the worst apology ever um, were literally ignoring 50% of the apology so they would only focus on the things that they thought was not good enough. But let me focus on the things that were important. I've got it up here. It's on screen, I think, if you're watching on YouTube. All right. We live in a time when the words we say are very important and the impact goes well beyond our personal sphere. Now remember, he doesn't speak English very well. So this is probably hard for him to try and get this out as succinctly as possible. As a prominent board game designer, I have the responsibility to set an example by my words and actions. So even though I never meant to hurt anyone, um, I have to take responsibility because it happened. And people will say, oh, look, he said I didn't mean to hurt anyone. He's making excuses for himself. No. If you read the rest of the sentence, he very clearly says, I take responsibility. I hurt people. This happened. I was wrong. He continues, I have to learn to use my words when addressing complex racial issues which impact our world and avoid misunderstanding and not make such statements again. My sincerest apologies. I ask your forgiveness. Now, people ignore all of that and just say, oh, you think you were just misunderstood. Clearly, you don't get it. 
and you'll ignore everything else. When in fact, he talks about how racism has to be condemned, it has no place in our society, what I did was wrong, I realized I hurt people, people should expect better of me. He said all of these things, and he made very clear that he intends to do better. But people who were out to destroy him ignore all of that, which is literally almost 50%, and actually focus on the things that, I'll admit, he could have said better. Uh, he does start out a little bit defensive. Now, if you want to treat him as an actual human being and, and try to express empathy, we were talking a lot about empathy earlier. Mm. I'm going to assign some empathy to Daniel Testini. Imagine the situation he's in. Something that he just genuinely didn't understand. He was ignorant that he was saying hurtful things. He didn't realize it. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he literally gets destroyed professionally because of it. Without any opportunity... To, uh, to even have an understanding as to why it happened. Nobody actually said, oh, Danielle, that was really kind of a problem. Now, if somebody had said, oh, Danielle, that's really a problem. He said, no, it's not. You're being oversensitive. You're being an SJW cuck. I don't care. Get out of here with that. Then, yeah, um, you know, phasers on kill. Definitely. <laughs> but that's not what happened. Instead, it was um, shoot first and don't ask questions. As opposed to ask questions and then maybe shoot. That's kind of my approach. Um... And so, anyway, he did do another apology that was much more deep, uh, and, and I think, you know, even better. But I just wanted to point out, a lot of people say this apology was garbage, and I think you are literally willfully ignoring... You're, you're not applying empathy to a human being. You are not using the golden rule or the platinum rule um, uh, to continue with the themes from earlier. And I do think these are important to use. And I do apply them, and I think he's a good person. I think he's capable of change. I believe he has proven it, to me, at least twice in the past. And we should have given him a chance. You will note, I liked his original, uh, if you're looking, I, I liked it on Facebook. That's pretty much the only thing I said publicly until now. Now, there's another side, uh, because there's another interview people found, where he uh, somebody asked him about what... Elizabeth Hargrave said about how she finds it's very uncomfortable to be a woman um, at board game conventions. Uh, you know, that can be really problematic. And I'll admit, he had a terrible response to that, which is, I don't agree. I mean, it was a very simplistic, again, kind of problematic uncle. You know, everybody has that uncle who's like, oh, dude, why are you saying that? Here's an example. My mom <laughs> still refers to Asian people as Orientals. She does. And I've had several talks with her. We actually just had to talk about it the other day again because she's really tried to take it on board. She doesn't understand why, but okay, I won't call, you know, I won't say Oriental drivers or anything like that. That's my mom. Um, everybody knows people like this. And she's a good person. She's ignorance doesn't mean malice. And give a person a chance to correct their ignorance. I believe Danielle Tessini was ignorant about the Elizabeth Hargrave stuff, where he basically, when Elizabeth Hargrave says words to the effect of, yeah, it can be a very uncomfortable place for women in board gaming. And he says, oh, that's ridiculous. Any table of gamers I'm at, they'd love to have women there because it's all dudes. It's like, dude, you're not listening. That's, that's a bad answer. But I don't believe it's a malignant answer. I believe it's an ignorant answer. And I believe he, um, if you're willing to talk to him, he can do better. And I think he will do better, and I hope he makes a comeback. But anyway, that's where I sit with Tassini. So no, I am personally... Um, hey, here's Tekenu. It's on the wall in the background while I film. Uh, just coincidentally. I don't think I need to take it down because I believe he was hit by an unfair smear campaign. And you know, we were talking earlier about generations of Trump people mm. who simply will not listen 
cannot be convinced with simple black and white facts because they've already made their mind and anything that is inconsistent with what they have already decided, um, they just completely ignore. They dismiss it out of hand. Fake news. Fake news. That's an example of a really extreme white right-wing conservative response to the real world. I think this is an example of an equivalent left-wing where people, good people, I believe, no pun included, thought they were doing the right thing. They were a socially responsible thing when they set out to destroy him. Um, because they're on the far left side. And uh, where, you know what, there's just no talking to it. They just need a couple of keywords, and then it's full steam ahead. Phasers, not to stun, but set to kill. Do not let him survive. And that's where I sit on that. I imagine it's very controversial, especially, as I say this, on day one of Black History Month, wearing a Black Lives Matter um, shirt. But it's maybe it's appropriate that there's been all this talk over the last couple months about the Golden Rule and the Platinum Rule on this podcast, because I choose to apply the Golden Rule to Danielle Tassini. I would treat him as I would hope others would treat me. And I would hope if I had been an ignoramus a total dummy who just completely stupidly said stuff and didn't give it a second thought because I'd never been challenged about it. People just accepted it. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a friend. He's kind of problematic, but it's okay. We live with it because we still love him. I would want someone to tell me, oh my gosh, what you're saying is wrong. And I would want to be given the opportunity to improve myself as opposed to, oh, um, you, know, uh, you know, guilty. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. And that's my problem. Um... Many people will disagree, but that's where I am. And since we're here, and since somebody else asked about all the other, now let's do a rapid fire of the other um, controversy. Unless Jen has something to say on that topic. I just feel really bad. Honestly, that's what I feel more than anything else. I don't feel angry. I don't feel angry at the people who are destroying him. I don't feel angry at the publishers who have abandoned him. I just feel incredibly sad about all of it. Because this was all... Born of miscommunication. He miscommunicated to begin with. He said bad stuff, not knowing any better. But then um, that was exacerbated and compounded by other people who were not willing to even give him a second, uh, you know, even the first chance. The hateful things I saw um, posted immediately after, no pun included, from people I really admire and respect. And like, oh my gosh, I can't believe... Don't you even want to spend like half a second looking into this? Look at this quote. It's incomplete. They cut off half of his sentence. The worst sentence, he didn't get to finish it. Don't you even want to spend five seconds looking a little bit deeper than, oh, no pun included, said he said the N-word. He didn't. That's, that's demonstrably proven. And I will happily argue that with anybody. I will get out my Italian friends <laughs> who will also argue that. They will agree that, yeah. You know, because basically Negri, it's kind of the equivalent of the English language. In the 70s, you, know, you Basically, what he did would be the equivalent of some dude, some 40-something dude in 1978 hanging around saying, Hey, what's up, my Negroes? And it's like, yeah, we don't use that word. What? You've been called Negroes my whole life. I grew up, that's what I was told is the proper way. Uh, Martin Luther King referred to his fellow men as Negroes. Like, yeah, you know what? The times have changed. Meanings of words change. We are now, um, you know, African-Americans or Black Americans. And, okay... And at that point, he said, nope, that's all ridiculous. You're all N-words to me. Okay, yeah, you've got a case to cancel somebody. But if um, given the opportunity to say, oh, okay, that's fine. I can roll with that. I, I didn't appreciate that. I'm sorry for the cultural insensitivity. I'll try to do better in the future. 
give somebody the chance to try to do better. He was not given a chance. Um, and even still, even now, there it's it mostly died down. Who knows? Maybe this is going to kick it back up again. But there is basically just a mob out to destroy him. Um, Jen just... Oh, Jen has something to say. I've got something to say. Go, baby. Is it Avery Brooks? Is that the actor's name who played Commander Sisko? Avery Brooks is uh, uh, the actor who played Commander Sisko on Deep Space Nine, yes. Are you impressed? Good. That I'm that very out? impressed. Okay. Well, I remember him saying that he is not a black actor. He is a brown actor. Mm. And this is something that stuck with me because this is him defining what he wants to be yeah. referred to as. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's actually true. Um... I hope now this isn't going to get me into a firestorm of horrible things. <laughs> that black people aren't black. They are brown. That, that is, yeah, it, it is their actual hue. That is true. I mean, yeah. all, there's all kinds of shades. Um, true. Yeah. But, but this is Avery Brooks saying that that is what he wanted mm -hmm. to be called. And so to me, what he said there, um, I think hearkening back to the original orcs thing. Yes. About being black or brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is again saying that we can do better. Yeah. And that we don't have to classify everybody under one fell swoop of either white or black. Mm -hmm. okay. So, Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to, I mean, a lot of people making assumptions for Danielle Tessini's black friends and being uh, insulted on their behalf. When they step forward and say, no, you're all getting it wrong. We really wish you wouldn't do this because we know the man and we know what's in his heart. And what's said between friends is really none of your business. And then... That fault, you know. Here's a, here's a crazy thing. Today, just before we started filming on Twitter, I saw somebody complaining about a new role playing uh, YouTube show that uh, they're doing role playing stuff, but they're using Muppets, and one of the Muppets is a chainmail bikini lady with. Big breasts, wearing a chainmail bikini, and they're, the outcry was, "Oh my gosh, what? How could they do this? This is so outrageous!" Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, this is flying in the face of everything we've tried to do to be a more inclusive and welcoming thing. And then somebody pointed out, the actress who plays that character actually designed the Muppet, and actually named the Muppet Ariole. because she thought, and as she said in the video, "This is all me. This is everything I want to say." And then the whole guy's like, "Oh, okay." So it wasn't a, a, well, should we still be outraged then? <laughs> is that problematic? Or is it in fact an example of somebody claiming her space and her womanhood and stuff like that? What is it? And you know what? It depends on the context. That's what it is. Language is a very soft, squishy thing. And it's constantly changing and constantly evolving. And all I can say is give people a chance to catch up because some people are maybe a little bit behind the curve. And that's what happened there. And, and, and that's, as Jen said, I'm not angry at anyone. It's just all so sad and tragic that people I like and admire and respect wouldn't spend half a second and say, is this what you mean? Because I think that's a problem. And give him a chance. Uh, golden rule, platinum rule, whatever rule you want. Just use it, people. Um, just because we're all online and we don't have those human connections anymore doesn't mean we can't try. So anyway, that's what I said on that. All right, next one. And this is what some of you might have come for. Fun Again Games. Jen knows about this one. I do. We talked about this one quite a bit. I read her the whole thing. Here's the thing that recently happened. Um, the uh, CEO, owner, founder of Fun Again Games, which sponsors the Rotto Roundup every month. Um, this is where I come in. Basically, in a Facebook thread, said some really, really sexist stuff. Just terribly, you know, the worst of the worst that you would expect from the 50s. You know, just really outdated. Um, it, it was, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was words to the effect of, um, you know, you look a lot cuter when you smile. 
trying to calm a woman down. And, um, you know, he might as well have said, is Aunt Flo visiting? Because he instead made a joke about his COVID getting the it, it was just really terrible. Just awful stuff. And, um, and then people called him out. He's like, what? No, I was just trying to lighten the mood. And so, now that was an example, unlike Danielle Tassini, who never really got a chance to respond. He responded and said, what, you can't, can't you take a joke? And that was uncool. Now, I don't think that means he is an implicitly evil person. I think that means he could be a very good person, a good father, a good husband, you know, a good member of the community, a good businessman, who just unfortunately happens to have some really old, outdated, sexist perspectives. And it's just kind of ingrained in him. It's what he grew up with. And maybe has never been called on it. And he's never been called on it. The women in his life's like, oh, what's his name? Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Don't you know any better? And they just kind of put up with it and they roll their eyes. And he thought it was okay for him to say it in public. And yeah, that was totally uncool. Totally uncalled for. And so, immediately, everybody says, we need to shut down Fun Again Games. We need to put it out of business. Uh, Fun Again Games is an online board game retailer. They also have a real-world shop in uh, Central Oregon. And they do a lot of distribution. They do a lot of backbone stuff. Getting Kickstarter games into the hands of people. Doing all the production. And they're apparently, they're really good. They're one of the best, most uh, you know, re you know, responsible and uh, respected at that. And they, they have 25 full-time employees. And everybody's saying, oh, because of what Jeff said, because he's a sexist, um, everybody needs to shut it down. Publishers need to stop using their fulfillment services. Everybody needs to stop building them. We need this place to close down. And I have to decide, am I going to uh, stop having them support the show? Because, I mean, it's not about the money. Um, when I first told Jen this, she said, yeah, we don't need that money. Uh, because it was pretty bad, what he said. Um, and like, okay, well, I'll, I'll think about it. And uh, because I, w I wanted to give him the chance. Now, admittedly, his first chance was terrible. He actually took a second stab at it. <laughs> it was also still pretty terrible. He totally missed it. And I'm like, wow, I think I'm going I'm, 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 I'm to have to... I, I, I personally don't want Rotto Runs Through to be associated with that attitude. I do not want to put it on a platform. Um, so, talking about that censorship question earlier. Wow, everything's dovetailing back together. Isn't that nice? Um, and so I'm, I'm unhappy with that. And... Um, Boy, let's see. There, uh, uh, all right, oh, what was I saying? Okay. But then, a few days later, a Funnigan released a press release um, wherein uh, basically they said, we the employees of Funnigan Game, all 25 of us, want to declare this does not reflect us. We are disappointed in our boss. We um, do not support this, and we have asked him to step down, and he has stepped down. And that's freaking huge. That is, that's, that is the biggest admission of guilt Jeff could have done. That he recognized, ultimately, that what he said was so bad and so problematic. Even if he doesn't fundamentally agree it's problematic or not. I don't know. I can't read his mind. I can't feel his heart. Maybe he still thinks it's fine. But what he did recognize is what he had done was basically going to potentially put all of his employees out of business. And they were all going to lose their jobs. And this is a, not a good time to lose your job. Um, and so he said, all right, I will step down. And I know a lot of people say, yeah, but you still get paid. And, dude, uh, if, if that's your attitude, I, you know, because still, most a lot of people are still saying, well, I refuse to support Fun Again as long as Jeff DeBoer gets the tiniest fraction of a penny when I buy a game from them. And I just... Here's the deal. I have worked with CEOs for my entire professional career, and I can guarantee you there is nothing more painful or unthinkable for them than the idea of having to give up 
their company, to no longer stand at the top, give direction, to have to walk away from everything. That's a huge punishment. And yeah, here's the deal. He's already a fairly well-to-do real estate person, as I understand it. So yeah, he makes a little bit of money on the side. That doesn't matter. The fact that the thing that is his passion in life, that he decided to start up after he was successful in real estate, and he's, okay, I'm going to do this, and he built, uh, he built a company that employs 25 people, does great work, and now he has to walk away, um, doesn't excuse what he said. And I still would hope, at some point, he could come to recognize that what he said was untenable and unforgivable on some level. But I don't want to punish the 25 people who were brave enough to step up and say, Jeff, we want you to leave. I can't even imagine doing that with my boss. And I've had a lot of strong-willed bosses. And when I, heard, when I read that press release, I thought, okay then. I don't support Jeff, I don't support what he said, but I do support this company of these 25 people who were brave enough to take this step. And that's why Funnigan Games still uh, supports. And when I told them, uh, you know, not Jeff, I have to admit, I've, I don't think, I know if I've ever even spoken to Jeff, I think I might have met him once at a convention, but um, his basic number two wrote back saying, thank you for sticking by us, because so many people are abandoning them, and I don't believe it's fair to them to punish, sure, he, he said problematic stuff. He didn't seem to be remorseful. I'm a bit more sympathetic to, okay, let's shut him down. I don't want to shut down 25 innocent people who were brave enough to take steps to fix the problem. And that's, why, that's where I stand on fun again right now. I support them. I put them on the beginning of my roundup shows because of that very brave stance that they took. All right, who else? What other ones are there? Uh, there's Phil Eklund. Uh, which is actually tied to the... So what do I think about the Phil Eklund situation? First of all, I know people have been saying Phil Eklund is a problematic designer for years. I have to admit, I don't know. I never heard that until all this happened. But apparently, um, Phil Eklund is a designer, a very smart guy, apparently, does really deep, heavy, crunchy games that are really uh, intricate recreations of rocket science and evolutionary biology and all kinds of things. And apparently for years, he, there, there have been people who have said he's very problematic with his attitudes. Like he's done articles about, how, well, here's the good stuff that happened from colonization because he's done colonization games and stuff like that. And he, apparently he always does this as a very academic look. I'm not, I'm not saying colonization was good. I'm just saying some good things came out of it. And a lot of people have been very upset with him for a long time. Apparently, his publisher said, you know what? We are no longer going to allow him to publish his essays in the rulebooks for the games because we think they're problematic and they don't reflect what we think. And that led to another thread of shouting and screaming. This was a thread that Jeff DeBoer was sexist in, trying to get everybody to calm down with some sexist jokes. But anyway, um, independent of all that, there's still Phil Eklund. Is he problematic? And I'm like, okay, I've got a couple of his videos I've posted. High Frontier and um, Neanderthal. Should I leave those up? If I leave those videos up, I'm supporting him. So I didn't assume anything. I went and started looking. I, I, I decided to do the work instead of just taking the word of people saying he's a monster. And here's the deal. One of the things they were complaining about was his COVID stance. And that was a very easy thing to find. You can find it. If you go to Facebook and search for Phil Eklund, it's going to be like his fifth or sixth post. Um, and it's very interesting. He made a post saying, you know what, I've done some statistical research, and as near as I can tell, I'm, I'm super paraphrasing, and it's not necessarily fair for me to do this, you, I suggest you go read it yourself. But I, my paraphrasing of it is that, um, sorry, honey pie, but I will ask you what you think. Okay. Or do you just want to get the heck out of here? I'm just stretching. Okay, 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 good. She's just stretching, folks. Um, what was I saying? 
Okay, um, it was basically worse the effect of, hey, because of the statistics I've seen, um, all the lockdowns that have been done are a waste of time and they shouldn't be done and they're causing more harm than good. And personally, I don't believe that. And a lot of people responded. And his, his academic is, look, I'm just an academic. I'm just posting stats. Um, convince me otherwise. And so here's what I saw. A bunch of people saying, your stats are outdated. Here's the updated link. Um, where with numbers that actually completely contradict what you're arguing. Never mind the fact that you say, uh, literally in his post, I don't understand these stats, therefore I'll draw a conclusion. And he didn't see a problem with that. Um, and, but anyway, the, the most telling thing was when people uh, gave him updated stats, and he, and he literally said, well, yeah, those are interesting stats. Those are really inconsistent with the ones I have already. He didn't change anything. It's been weeks, and his original post is still there. And to me, that smacked very much... And I mean, just reading his thing without any other context, he says, oh, based on these two stats, lockdowns are bad, uh, government shouldn't be shutting down, COVID should have been handled a different way, it's really not that much worse than the flu, a lot of really anti-COVID-y type stuff. Um, but look, I'm just going with the data, and here's the deal. He so cherry-picked the hell out of that data. Look, I'm only looking at these two numbers. And I'll ignore all these other numbers. For folks who are, are low-carbers like me and Jen, he was basically pulling an Ansel Keys. Right? Is that it? Ansel yep. Keys? Um, and just cherry-picking data to make his point that he had already decided on. And, I saw, and that was all I needed. I saw that and said, yeah, that's not cool. I do not like that. And other people have given him the opportunity to correct what he said. He's not taking it. So what did I do? I took his videos down. So I am anti-Phil Eklund. So far, I'm pro-Danielle Tassini, pro-Funnigan Game, anti-Phil Eklund. Um, right, so that's where I come down on all of those. But we're not done yet, folks. Yeah, if you want to jump in with anything, Honey Pie, do you have any? No. Yeah, Jen did... The really only one Jen really took a look at was the sexism one, because I wanted you to read that, and you, yeah. and you really did. It was terrible. Yeah. It was really, 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 really bad. It's not good. But again, Funnigan themselves, 25 brave people stepped up, and took accountability on his behalf when he wouldn't do it. Yep. And I respect that. And I support that. Anyway, sorry. So, other big ones. Um, this is my big complaint. For the whole industry that I'm a part of, we, all of us, have huge audiences. Thousands of people see us every day. And under those circumstances, for us to get on camera with members who are not members of our immediate household, who live in other houses, who live in other states, and just very happily sit together and play games without wearing masks, knowing that, what, 3,000 people died today? And the majority of them died because they fundamentally don't believe that masks are important. Please, guys, I beg of you, stop doing this. Send the right message. Lead by example. That handful of viewers who thinks that masks are garbage, show them they're wrong by modeling good behavior and wearing masks. That's all I'm asking. Um, and so, that's, that's my big cancel. I'm canceling everybody for uh, not doing this. You're all canceled until you start wearing masks. Because, yeah, racism is important. Sexism is important. All these things are important. But COVID is killing people. And if you don't wear masks, you're saying it's okay not to wear masks. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And that's it, folks. Woo! Except, Jen's been very patient. Oh my gosh, it's... I can't possibly follow all that. Let's do my thoughts No, let's later. do your words of wisdom. I mean... I'm going to do a different words of wisdom. You have a different one? Yeah. Wasn't, the, uh, wasn't that a good one, though? It was a really good one, but I can't, can't self-flagellate after all of that. Oh, I like that one, though. Why, 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 why do you think that... Why, why do you not want to do that one? Okay, well, it's either that one or this one. All right. 
Yeah, Jen's got a couple. She's got one. All right. Uh, I was going to publicly uh, self-flagellate myself, but... All right, well, well, like no, there's... no, let's see, let me see the other one again. Sorry, I know this is not much fun to watch or listen to. All right. Um... I mean, this is totally what I wanted to come clean on. Well, you should. No, this is good, honey pie. I... Yeah, so Jen's, uh, some, one of her friends mentioned this. She's, it really hit you. Yeah. And you were still thinking about it days later. Yeah. And you were thinking, oh, I want to share this with the Rado Talks Through group. And you couldn't find it, but then you did. You did some research <laughs> and you found it. So I, I think it's great, Honey Pie. I think these are good words of wisdom. Okay. So basically, I know you guys have heard me speak in the past about how I don't really follow politics and I don't really watch the news and I don't really blah, 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 because it just doesn't, it makes me unhappy. Right. Yes. So I know I've said that in the past, but so I was trolling along on Facebook and this this image came up of a lady holding a sign in front of her face and I'm going to read you her sign and then I'm going to say that is me I I understand that that is me I recognize that I was doing that and I will do better so this lady her name's Kristen T she signed it <laughs> says I want my friends to understand that staying out of politics or being sick of politics is privilege in action your privilege allows you to live a non-political existence. Your wealth, your race, your abilities, or your gender allows you to live a life in which you are likely not to be a target of bigotry, attacks, deportation, or genocide. You don't want to get political, you don't want to fight, because your life and safety are not at stake. It is hard and exhausting to bring up issues of oppression also known as getting political. The fighting is tiring. I get it. Self-care is essential. But if you find politics annoying and you just want everyone to be nice, please know that people are literally fighting for their lives and safety. You might not see it, but that's what privilege does. That's fantastic. Yes. And that was me. So I apologize and I will try and do better. Um, that's awesome, honey pie. I'm really glad you shared that. Um, and, uh, and if anybody was upset or triggered by what I said, um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. And it doesn't have to be in this kind of back and forth. Um, if, if you want to send a question to questions at rado.com on the air, that's cool. That's my assumption. If you want to send a question to questions at rado.com and just start off the top saying, look, this is not for on the air, but I want to talk to you about this because I feel strongly, that's cool too. I will happily talk to you. Um, and uh, folks, this was a very, very big episode of Rado Talks Through. And uh, I think we're all done, and Daisy literally just burst in through the door, and she is so waggy and happy, <laughs> and it's just good to be reminded of that. Yep. Uh, I think we're going to take her for a walk. So thanks for listening, everybody, as always. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.